Welcome to episode 121 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. We're just a couple of guys hanging out at the beach, drinking martinis and bootstrapping. Except that Jason doesn't drink, Jason's not a bootstrapper, and we're not hanging out at the beach. <laughs> well, I guess I am a bootstrapper. Are you? That part's true. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't have funding, so that by, so by definition. Okay, so, so you, you don't mind being a bootstrapper, but you don't want the show known as a bootstrapping show. I, yeah, I mean, we're not a bootstrapping show. Am I currently in the phase of bootstrapping my side project? Yes. Okay. That, that is true. That I'm glad is. we cleared that up. All right. So uh, let's, let's get started. What what you got for me? Well, I fear we'd start <laughs> with the latest on uh, Startup Guild, right? That's been taking up all your time lately. Yeah, it has. Um, it's, it, I've been a little bit demonic about it. I've had the madness regarding Startup Guild. Yeah, There's I've no noticed. I see your face on every single message. <laughs> And every comment, there's at least one or two, you know, inputs from you. I was like, my God. You That's must probably be. a bit too much, isn't it? Well, I mean, I, I think it's important that when you start something up, a community that you're doing everything you can to facilitate it. And, yeah. and I think you're doing a good job. You're acting as what I would call like a super connector. So it's Super like spreader. Well, super spreader sounds like you got a disease. <laughs> right. But a super connector is someone who just connects up a lot of other people. And I think... It's it's very similar to if you're hosting a party and you invite a bunch of people who don't necessarily know each other, but who you know would uh, have a lot in common. Mm. And you meet them at the front door and you're like, hey, how's it going? Why don't you tell us what you're doing, what you're working on? Hey, you should talk to these other people. And you get all this stuff started. Because uh, you, you know what I realized was that basically everyone follows me because I set it up. But yep. They follow very few other people. So when someone comes in and says something, very few people say, it kind of sees what that person says. So if I then reply to it, it then everyone gets to see that reply and gets introduced to that person. Yeah. Well, I think what you're doing is, is uh, going to increase the chance of Startup Guild being useful for, for in general. I yeah. mean, you're, you're making, you're, you're getting the community kickstarted. But I imagine if it, you're sort of, that's all you've been doing right, for the past week, right? I mean, you've probably had very little time for consulting. Pretty, pretty much. Uh, I mean, I have, I have got some consulting done, but uh, really it's Plugio that's lost out more than anything else. Um, but I, the, I did get a message from a member today who said, um, it's good to have more people in Startup Guild, but don't you think it's getting a wee bit crowded in here? Not to mention there are more non-technical and non-bootstrappers are in the group now. Are um, there really? Yeah, well, that, I, I haven't noticed that. And, th- and then he goes on to say, I'm afraid that if you just let everyone in uh, without clear cri- criteria, that Startup Guild might degenerate to be a focusless public forum, much like Facebook or LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, no, you do. I, I think you need to limit to people who are uh, doing working on startups. Yeah, it, it's and to some degree or another. You know, they don't necessarily have to be funded. It doesn't necessarily have to be a first thing. I don't think they have to be thing. technical either. I, I mean, like someone someone who's building a startup can just be someone, you know, who who needs to find programmers. I mean, look at um, look at uh, Jeff from Zferral. I mean, Zferral's a pretty awesome startup, and he he's completely untechnical. Well, yeah, well, there's a lot of um. A lot of startups are started by people who are, it, they're very at the most semi-technical. 
Yeah. Right? I mean, they can kind of code, but really not. Or, or some of them are designers who know a little bit of front-end design. There are some people who are just business people. But those, those types of expertise are important. I mean, startups don't work by code alone. That's right. You, yeah. you, need a great, you need a great business guy, a business development guy. So if all of a sudden you stop letting those people who, I mean, who don't have any kind of technical credentials but who want to start a startup, then you're kind of essentially nipping at the bud the possibility of great business guys meeting great developers. Yeah, and you know, and I wouldn't even say early on in a startup. I mean, a lot of startups get get by without having a great business guy, but those technical people need to have that business knowledge. Yeah, right. So, like Thirty Seven Signals are canonical example of a sort of a bootstrap successful startup. They don't have a business guy, as it turns out. Uh, Jason Freed and uh, DHH have learned <laughs> learned pretty quickly uh, how to how to run a business successfully. And if you get on Startup Guild. You can ask people questions about, you know, raising money, about, you know, what kind of legal uh, entity do they need to incorporate as, uh, you know, how to uh, how to deal with, um, you know, uh, payment gateways in terms of or setting merchant accounts. I mean, there's a million business things. How to marketing? Mm-hmm. I mean, all those things are important. They're as important. They're as important as how do I scale my back end and should I use PHP or Python and you know whatever. I mean, these are all pieces to the puzzle. So you want you want a mix of all of those types of people to make it work, be, it, be useful to everybody. Yeah, exactly. And so the other thing I was thinking in, with regard to his question was, um, when, whenever I go in, there tends to be around about 40 people there. And, you know, it's, it's kind of come to the point where the conversation isn't kind of live. It's, it's kind of almost live. You know, you'll ask a question and maybe it's going to be answered in like 10 minutes or something. Sort of like IRC, you know. And um, I, I, I just think that it, it could easily stand to be, you know, to have an average of around 100 in there in that kind of lurk mode because then you've got you've got a really good gene pool and uh, you know a lot of different perspective and you're going to get your answers faster so yeah well i also think that if you use groups correctly i mean yeah that's really important too so if 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 you're not interested in some of the business issues right Mm. or you're not interested in some of the technical issues you don't have to follow the main feed you just look at your feed and you just join the groups that you're interested in Exactly, and just just unfollow everyone except for the people who you're who you're really interested in, and the groups that you're really interested in. Well, I mean, and then you can of, basically self-edit it. Well, it's kind of like Twitter. It's like it's getting kind of you know crowded in Twitter. Well, it's like well, don't follow five hundred thousand people. That's <laughs> true. Like I mean, Twitter has three hundred million. It's kind of crowded. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can only follow. You can make it so that you're only watching the information that you find relevant. So I, I don't think that's a very valid um, criticism. I think, I think you want this thing to get bigger and have more, um, a wider variety of, 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 of experiences and expertise and just more people makes it more interesting, I think. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, as long as people aren't actually spamming and they're basically talking about stuff that is related to startups and building businesses, then I think they're good to have in there. But that said, I think you do ultimately want to start uh, applying some kind of filter because you don't want to get a bunch of people who are who are sort of um, just pure um, scammy marketers. I mean, there are people no, who are yeah. expert, you know, internet marketers like Ilya, who we had on, who can provide a lot of great uh, advice to uh, to entrepreneurs about how to how to get some um, traffic to their sites. But you don't want all those Twitter marketers coming on and, and yeah, and, yeah, uh, no, and, totally. So. I, I think you've done a good job getting with, there's what, over 550 people on now? Yeah, 561 members now, as we speak today, Saturday morning, Saturday, so April 9th. So I think that's a good start, but I think you either want to do invitation only, like um, 
like uh, Kyle Bagger, uh, Bragger did over at um, Forest. Yeah. Which allows, which has like a, a double karma system. So you get karma for yourself, but you also get sort of residual karma for, from the people who you invite in. And you also get negative karma. So if the people you invite in do uh, negative things, start spamming or start, you know, ranting and raving and mm. on, the, on the site that you're going to be affected by that. So you help. Well, that, that would have to be long term because obviously being on Yammer, we don't have that kind of control over the platform. Well, that's that's fine. So that's one option. The other option is that you're the gatekeeper and then you're the one in charge of, uh, of letting people in and then kicking them out and reprimanding them. So you can do that early on, um, but you, you need to do that at some point. But I can't kick them out right now. You can't kick people out? No. See, that's the one problem with like, I, you know, you, you, you mentioned to me offline a couple of days ago about how you uh, and you and Sebastian in particular were talking about using Yammer as the main platform and then building apps within the Yammer platform to extend it mm-hmm. for the purpose of Startup Guild. Well, if, if we were to do that, the only way would be if we cut a deal with Yammer and they gave us access and then we would be able to kick people out. Because basically the, the, it's the free account where you could, don't really have any admin controls, but you also can't plug in custom apps into a free account. So we're, we're kind of in negotiations with them now to say, look, we're going to build these apps, give us an upgraded account, and then what you'll get out of it is apps you know, that you can use for your other networks. Right, and of course, this is the audience that you want to have. Um, yeah, exactly. Have some experience like using Yammer, right? Because if yeah. all these people are tech people, they're the kind of they're they're a lot of more influences in the companies they work for or the companies they're starting. And yeah, but uh, you know, I think it's a whole other uh, interesting line of conversation, which is the idea of using Yammer as your platform versus building your own platform yourself and using uh, Yammer as one piece that's sort of plugged into the overall infrastructure. Because you've already mentioned a couple things right off the bat that Yammer can't do. Yeah. Right? So you're kind of locked in. And I think it's really, it's really good that you pick some off-the-shelf off um, off software to get going. Yeah. And that might be the case of what needs to happen for the next few months. But I think for something like this to really work as well as it can possibly work, you're going to have to go the custom software route because there are going to be lots of little... Uh, improvements, the two of which I just mentioned, um, and there's going to be dozens and dozens of others that I'm sure you'll think about or have already thought about that you're going to really want to do that are going to make it better, but you, you just can't do it if, if, if it's a closed platform. But the thing is, I mean, I think that when if we can write our own custom apps within Yammer, then basically we we are in a position of essentially having our own software. Well, you're yeah. assuming that uh, these these apps and the kind of uh, APIs they have access to allows you to do anything and everything, which my guess would be probably not. I mean, my guess is it allows you to extend it considerably beyond what Yammer can do already, but it may may not come close to doing the kind of things that we're talking about, like building this sort of you know two sided uh, residual karma system. I mean, that may be just way beyond what the apps do. I mean, maybe it won't. Until, yeah. I guess that'd be one thing to check. I mean. Look, if, if, if you can get away with, with, with uh, riding on a platform that does, that's 90% of the way there from the start, and then you can build apps using the infrastructure without having to do a whole lot of work, go for it. You know, but I'm just guessing that that won't be the case. You're still going to run into a wall at some point where you're going to want to do other stuff, but you can do that later. Well, yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, so here's the thing. The, the apps that we want to build um, are basically uh, a matchmaker app so that people can meet each other. We want to build a marketplace app so that people can do for, do jobs. And um, then we want to build like an app that can help us keep track of the member growth. So, so those kind of things are kind of important. And then also we want the ability to boot members that are bad, you know, that are spammy or bad. And then I think 
I think that that would kind of be good enough to keep the thing going for like a year and kind of grow the base. And then I think it would be, okay, pull everything out and go for a completely custom app and kind of build it up that way. Mm-hmm. After that time, that's that's my yeah. I, I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, I think you want to follow the eighty twenty rule: eighty percent of the payoff for twenty percent of the uh, work. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And yeah. the other good thing is, is that you know we've got a few members in there who want to build apps. <laughs> so, so the thing is, is that I, you know, I can obviously I can't do everything, and I can pass off some of that work to other members to build those apps and to I, get to get more functionality out of it. You know, just like that that one guy already built the um, the members map. You know, which by plugging into Yammer. What's Which his is, name? Um, his name is um, um, I don't know how to pronounce it. You you good at pronouncing name, pronouncing names? You've his is really hard. Uh, Ma- Martin Brockhouse. 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 B R O C H. Probably Martin Brockhouse. Brockhouse. Okay. Yeah. Good. Well, at least at least you, you got to give him some recognition, right? Oh yeah, yeah. No, that map is freaking awesome. That's members.startupguild.net. It's very very cool. So he's plugged into the Yammer API. And um, as long as someone's typed in their location, uh, they, they're on the map. And then it's displaying their full Yammer profile on the map. And, and see, one of the things that I think is going to be, it could be an interesting use of this, is that if you could have, if this thing could spawn um, sort of local startup guilds or local meetups anyway. So it, with the map, you know, if people register, you can look and say, okay, well, I got, you know, 20 people within 10 miles of where I live. Yeah. Um, and then you, you could, that would maybe inspire you to say, well, let's do like a, a monthly, you know, dinner or something or a weekly lunch or, or whatever. I mean, people are always looking to hook up with people and near them and hang out. And, you know, it's, 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 it's useful to be able to talk to people online, but it's still not the same as being able to talk to people in person. Yeah, no, that's true. So I, I, I think, I mean, there's, there's already that- people doing that in Singapore. There, there was, there's a whole, there was a group of them. There's like five people um, who realized they're all from Singapore and they're already talking about setting a meetup. Yeah, well, that's really good. So, I mean, integrating something like that that shows all of the local groups that are meet up, how often they meet up and how many people and, and list their members um, in some sort of structured way, I think would be a, another really good use of Startup Guild. Mm-hmm. You know. So you had, you, you had some other oh, ideas. Oh, one it. thing I was going to say about that, is, and, and the reason for that is important, is people, you know, Startups sometimes form virtually. You meet people who are, live on the other side of the world and work with them. But a lot of times people are more comfortable doing a startup with somebody who lives near them, right? And they get together and, you know, it just, it just allows for a stronger relationship to form. And I think if people start meeting up in person, those people could start spawning um, companies. Well, it's, it's interesting because with the mastermind, with our mastermind, I don't want to say the names here, but two of the members who met through the mastermind the, our, our weekly mastermind are now in full-time business together and yeah. they, they met through the mastermind and so they they kind of discovered you know one of them was a was a non-tech and one of them was a tech and they discovered okay yeah let's you know i've got an interesting business and i can i can help you out let's let's hook up and yeah. so yeah and that that only happened because of the regular conversations that we were having on skype yeah no <clears throat> i think that's really good and i think um it has more utility than say something like twitter because people can the, the messages are longer. Yeah. There's more of a conversation. I mean, I, you know, my perspective on Twitter, I, I don't really, I don't really get it that well. I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't figure out how to use it. Um, like other people seem to, but, um, I think with, uh, a startup guild, because it's more like Facebook and that you can write longer comments, longer messages that people can develop relationships, um, better. 
right? I mean, if you if you follow, if I only communicate with you in 140 character, you know, quips, it's kind of hard to establish a bunch of a relationship, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, but no, definitely. Of, yeah. So. We can say you were going to ask me. You were asking me my some ideas. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I was going to say. I was going to say because you, you you've been saying offline that you have some ideas, but you want to talk about it on the show because you didn't want to waste valuable content. Oh, you know, I think I forgot some of the ideas, but two of them that occurred to me <laughs> <Nice>. right now. <laughs> uh, two of them that occurred to me right now are um, that you should are things that would be cool to do through uh, Startup Guild. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them would be a, a hackathon, right? Virtual hackathon. Somebody registered. And you could do a Yammer Apps Hackathon. Oh, yeah, what a good idea. Yeah, I mean, if you want to get stuff built for uh, Yammer and you want people to be able to see what one another, see what everyone else is building and have a competition, say, all right, we're going to have a 24-hour, 48-hour hackathon. And, uh, you know, you could do something like that. You could even have, um, you could even seed it in a way that, okay, everybody throw out what their ideas are and we'll vote on, you know, everyone can vote on what some of the best ideas are and uh, that way, you know, maybe you have three ideas for mm-hmm. a Yammer app and you throw them up there and one of them gets 20 votes, one of them gets seven and one of them gets none. You're like, okay, well, <laughs> I'm going to build the one that has 20 votes, you know, and uh, you can team up with, you know, in pairs or, you know, triples or something. That would be one fun thing to do because not only would it build apps for Yammer or for Startup Guild, which would be useful, which is what you need done anyway. Mm-hmm. It'll be a ton of fun for the people involved. People love you know, doing things like that hackathon. I would love to do a hackathon if I had time, if I didn't have kids and everything. <laughs> I I could just disappear for a weekend. I mean, I would that would be a blast, especially if you're playing around with a new language or new platform you you've ne- you have, don't have as much experience with. And then of course it allows you to meet other people and have fun with other people. So if you if you do it in teams of twos and threes, then those people you become friendly with, and those are the kind of people you go off and do real projects, you know, with that you go out and start companies with. Yeah, yeah, I know that's a good idea. Actually, talking about votes, um, we've had so there's there's been an issue. Like, I want to to get new members in. What I wanted to do was to connect to the API and get the public being uh, to get the content being displayed to the public via startupguild.net, so that Google Google could SEO it and basically people would come in that way. Um, and then I kind of rechanged that to maybe just have like a Hacker News top discussion, which I could then submit to Hacker News and maybe get people in that way. So I mentioned that on the guild and then took a took a vote and basically put up a poll. And I was kind of surprised that uh, basically the three options I had was keep all content completely private, allow all content to be public, or just show the, the very best content as a teaser. But basically 63% of people said keep it completely private versus, uh, the, you know, only 8% said public and 28% said show the best content. Which is not what I want to do, but I've realized that, well, if that's what the group wants to do, that I pretty much have to kind of go in that direction. So it's um, going to be... Go why is it that not what you want to do? Um, I don't know, because I, I guess I, to me, I mean, I, I'm a little more kind of show... Like, I don't really care about showing my figures and things like that. And I guess a lot more people do. Like, a lot of people are like that. So I, I can kind of understand their perspective. Like, for me, I don't really have, you know... You don't, feel, you don't have anything to hide. You're not. I don't have anything to hide, and I don't really mind talking about my own stuff. But I think that's probably part of the fact of being a front man in a band and all that other stuff. Like well, you, also, we, also, we've been doing this for the podcast, right? You, you, you initially you were weren't as up uh, upfront, open about your figures, and then you just decided you were going to do an experiment in radical transparency. Yeah, I right? guess. So you've just I kind guess. of gotten used to it over the year, last year and a half, two years. I, I mean, guess maybe you're already yeah. inclined. You might have already been inclined towards that, but through the podcast, talking about 
your projects and what you think, and then going so far as to like publishing all of your um, all of your numbers um, and revenue, including revenue and attrition rates and everything. I mean, now you've just you're, you're, it's been so long since you've been uh, had any ability to hide. Yeah, <laughs> quiet. That is just not in the, it doesn't occur to you. So. So 60 people voted and, um, you know, that's, that's a lot of people's kind of opinions and, uh, 63% private. So that's the way it's going to go. So I'm going to put that as a feature on the homepage. Okay. This, this is going to be a completely private community. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I was actually one of the people who voted public because I was thinking along the lines of Cora, you know, cause Cora has grown, uh, very quickly. I mean, some people said it's kind of stagnated since January, but it, it, it had explosive growth. And you're not going to have explosive growth if, it, if it's private. You know, you're going to have very controlled incremental growth, I think. Um, but, you know, if you keep it private, then you can, lim- you can uh, maintain the quality, right? Yeah, exactly. You, you, I think you can maintain the quality and also people will be more forthcoming about stuff once they know it's private. So therefore, it may actually end up being more useful than Quora. Yeah, see, Cora, you know, which, which, you know, I'm sure most of our um, listeners know is a Q&A site, and it seems to focus largely on, uh, this, on startups <laughs> and related issues. And maybe it's extended beyond that, but that's been my impression. And, um, it, but they have to spend a lot of resources on, uh, on sort of um, editing and filtering um, posts, mm-hmm. right? You can, you can get your stuff edited, you can get it flagged, you can get it... Uh, you know, and so if, if you're going to have a public forum and you want to maintain the quality, then I think that might be the way you have to go is you have to have a lot of, um, you have to have a lot of people doing stuff like that. Um, and something like Wikipedia, people do it on their own, right? Everybody sort of, poli- you have sort of a, a self-policing crowd. Um, Quora is not, as from my, what I understand, it's not crowdsourced policing. It's the company, the Quora employees. Mm, that's interesting. Now, um, Yammer you know, or I should say Startup Guild via the Yammer software can't really work that way. So the way you do it is, okay, well, this is our club and we only let people into the club who are going to act according to basic principles of decency and, 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 and mutual respect and that sort of stuff and try and add value. And you can be the gatekeeper or maybe there's a few people you end up nominating to help do that who are sort of gatekeepers and they say they can warn people who aren't, you know, posting stuff that's, that's you know, within the within reasonable constraints and uh you know so i think those are your options if you're gonna go private you can do it though i don't think you're gonna have it's you're not gonna end up growing to you know 50 or hundred thousand or millions of users but you could still get to five or ten or twenty thousand people but it'll be a, a very private um fair i think we'll do that so um so what this is the final thing on startup girl because i don't want to completely bore people about it but when, when we were all first starting in there, uh, one of the questions that was asked is, you know, tell us your background, tell us a little bit about you. And Michael Rakita, who's also a listener of Texting, um, said, oh, you know what, my, it's, the story's too long, so what I'm going to do is write a blog post about it and I'll give you a link. And I didn't think too much about it at the time. So a few days later, sure enough, he posts back and he says, okay, here's a link to the story. So I went and read the story and it's like, this is awesome. Like basically it's, uh, the title was my startup story from big idea to thriving business in eight short years. And what, and what he, he has is he has this, uh, software called trace which is basically you put the software on your computer and it's like, um, it can tell you of incoming calls. It's like a, a call management software, your yeah. computer. 
And so he talks about how he always had this one big idea. I can't remember what the big idea is, but it's kind of like a Google-sized big idea. Uh, it was it was kind of like an intelligent uh, news um, sp- uh, spidering system. So oh, go yeah, that's the it, web, yeah. look for things that you might be interested in. And, and uh, I guess when you first thinking about it back in 2003, the RSS was in its infancy. And so he was um, you know, going to build something that was going to have to spider sites and do something like that. So it was a great story. And it was just, it was really the whole kind of, the whole entrepreneur and bootstrapping thing that, that I've been going on about, which is basically, you know, he's been thinking about this big idea, but on the side, he's been building this kind of just side project and more and more people contact him, et cetera, et cetera. And over time, that kind of side project thing just turned into a main business and his big idea never happened. But now he's got a really successful business that spawned out of the side project. And of course, as soon as I saw this, I was like, oh, yes, that's, that is a great story. So I, I pushed it to Hacker News. Yeah, I noticed you helped yourself <laughs> to some karma points. You're like, thank you very much. I'll post this HN, get myself another 100 uh, karma I pushed points. it to Hacker News, and then I put on the on, into Startup Guild, I put a link to the story saying, hey, check, I just I just submitted this story. And then, of course, a group of Startup Guild members voted it on, on Hacker News. So then it goes on the front page, and then, it, and then the snowball starts to take off. And like, you know, a day later, I've got 135 extra karma points. Yeah. I've, awesome. Yeah, helped, you, helped yourself to some karma points. There. No, no, he, he, said, he said he knew I was going to do that because I'd, <laughs> I'd actually posted like the, the last time that he had a story on Hacker News, it was because I'd posted it. So, oh, okay. he, so he said that he likes me to post it because it ensures that he gets on the front page. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. Because I guess in the end, in the end, the karma points in H and Hacker News don't really uh, amount to much. That's right. No, they don't. But <laughs> what it does amount to a lot is having your stuff go to the front page and getting a lot of traffic and being able to build your uh, pe- people's awareness of who you are or, or the projects you're working on or, or whatever. So one thing I want to bring up is that's, I guess one of the things I'm most excited about is seeing a lot of our listeners on, on, on Startup Guild. That's pulling me in more than anything. When I see Philip Monet and Ben Boiter and, um, uh, I mean, and uh, who else, Michael Rakita and Bams and, I mean, there's a ton of, a ton of them. Yeah, I see them on there. and I'm like, all right, yeah, I know these guys. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, because they've been commenting on the, commenting on the, on yeah. the, the blog for Peter like the Cooper. last year. Falling right. and I mean you know it, it, it's a ton I mean a ton of, I you know I can't go I don't can't go through all the names because it's probably like fifty of our listeners or thirty of our listeners are on that I I, I definitely recognized at least twenty five of them off the top of my head just looking I know I knew I recognized the names yeah I thought that was really cool so it's a great it's it's acting as a great center of center of gravity and it's helping us get to know those people more which is also yeah. awesome I've discovered so we know who Bams is now. We do. I don't know if we should uh, talk about no, that we, too we won't, much. No, we won't unmask Bams. But you and I know. Yeah. We know who you are, Bams. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, <laughs> you're a very clever guy. <laughs> yeah. I, I, one day when he decides to be unmasked, I, I like to discuss it. But yeah, uh, Bams is a smart guy, that's for sure. I can tell by his, uh, his posts and, and, and seeing his site. He's, he's, he's yeah, real bright guy. He knows his, he knows his shit. He does. So, all right, let's move on. Okay, well, uh, I've, I think I, I've brought up what, what we've talked about so far. Have you got anything? I'll go completely to a different topic. Go. So, um, there's, a, there's an interesting story right there. They call designer babies. Like it or not, here they come. Uh-oh. From the Singularity Hub. Oh, no. And I guess there's a, um, 
I forgot what they call it, PG, PGD, uh, PGD, which is pre-implant, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, um, which allows, um, if you do in vitro fertilization as opposed to the normal way, um, yeah. then natural implantation, then um, you, you can run a series of tests to, to um, uh, test for certain types of diseases, let's say, um, genetic disorders, things that are, you know, where, you know, your baby could end up dying within a year of its life. I mean, cause there's always some very, very severe diseases that are almost, you know, terminal, terminal to very early age. And there's no point in, in so going. So what, you run tests on the egg kind of thing? Well, the fertilized egg, right? So it's a, it's a very, well, it's, it's, I guess it's the embryo at it a, it a, you know, within a first few days of life kind of thing. Um, so, they run these tests and they can, they can test for diseases. And, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of controversy if you're testing for things like Down syndrome or these kind of degenerative muscular diseases where the baby can't move its head and, and dies within yeah. you know, a few months. And it's not, it's not very controversial to think that's, that would best be avoided because it's going to be complications for the mother, the baby's going to die. It's so what, so what, what's, the, what's the controversy how, about it then? Well, the controversy is it's slippery slope, right? Because then you start going to, they, they're able to test for things like hair and eye color, sex. Huh. They, they, can, they can actually do that. Yep. Yep. And um, it says that, um, yeah, and it says that 70% of their clients have absolutely no difficulty conceiving children come to the institute purely for opportunity to choose the sex of their baby just the sex yep yep which you know i mean i think in the u.s that's you know our the western countries that's not gonna be a big deal because i think most people are like fine either way and a lot of you know families will have two anyway and might like one of each or something but in countries like china it's been a problem because they had like the one one child per family but yeah. also so, uh, the other problem well, you're, you're aware of that right yeah but in china don't they also like they, they have a preference over a girl or a boy kind of thing that's the problem is that there's one if you're only allowed one child and because of the the chinese culture and the the son is supposed to support the family and in, you know in, in, through in their old age the parents in their old age and all these kinds of things just because of the the way their um their culture has worked over the years that there's this been preference and now you have this huge um difference between uh, a ratio imbalance between males and females and and it's getting the point now there's going to have be a lot more um there are a lot more young men than there are young women which creates a huge societal problems because if you have a lot of men running around with no wives that increases crime it increases uh, political instability it, it, it creates, creates a lot of um discontent you have to it, it drastically increases but, but they don't have the they don't have this kind of uh, screening over there so why do they have more no. guys than girls i mean uh, well, they, they, it's called infanticide. The families have killed their baby girls. Okay. Which okay. is, obviously, that's a whole other topic, and it's, it's awful. It's hard, you know, hard to imagine anything much worse than that. But anyway, the point is, though, in, in the U.S., um, you know, or, or I, don't, I think, imagine, I think this institute's in the U.S., right? And, um, you know, it'll probably be, the thing is, they were talking about, and like, a lot of countries have um, regulations against things like this. Mm-hmm. But the U.S. actually doesn't, which is surprising considering all our regulations on stem cell research and things like that. Mm. But what's interesting is that there these these um, these scientists are saying, "Hey, you know, we're gonna. This is just the start. Pretty soon, you'll be able to test for all all these other kinds of um, genetic markers." And as we get to understand the gen- the human genome um, better and better in the coming decades, 
things like intelligence and, and athletic ability and looks and, you know, all these other inter- – I mean, you know, you, 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 all the kind of things that uh, allow people to have advantages. You Would know, you submit it. yourself to that uh, – that, is it Larry Page's wife who um, – or no, Sergey Brin's wife who has yes, that – Yes, Sergey Brin's wife, right. Uh, well, I can't remember the name of it. It's like 27 things or something. Oh, uh, 23 and Me. 23 and Me, yeah. So basically it does the genetic analysis of you and gives you kind yeah. of a, a heads up about what potential diseases you might get. Yeah. Would you su- would you submit yourself to that? Yeah, I would. I, I, I mean, I think it's. It, I think it's. I mean, <sighs> genetics is. It, it may not be de- destiny, but it's pretty close. <laughs> you know, you you can overcome your genetics to some degree, but it's. Well, it's, have you submitted yourself to that? I haven't. Um, but why why not? If you would, uh, it's, I think it looks pricey. You know, um, you know, I, obviously, I'm not. I'm not maximizing my income through consulting because I spend a lot of time working on the startup. So I don't have, you know, an extra, you know, 500 or a thousand dollars for paying but for what a test. What happens if it comes back and tells you you're going to have Parkinson's? I mean, we just, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, you know, like, here's the thing. Why would I mean, you want to but know? yeah, but there are some things that if you know you're predisposed to have certain diseases, um, sometimes there are things you can do to ameliorate that earlier on. Mm-hmm. Right. So it allows you to take, to be somewhat proactive about that. So like if you're if you're predisposed to some kind of heart disease and they say well if you exercise and eat right and keep yourself in really good shape you know you have you know a drastically reduced chance of of um experiencing or or of having that kind of disease so you know it's worth knowing right so um, so if you course, if you were richer would you get it then are you going to get it have you been thinking about <laughs> I it? I wouldn't even say richer, but if I just you know I made something I have in the next few, you know few years because the prices of those things continue to to to, to drop right. Yeah. And um, I'm still young and healthy enough that it's like it's not critical that I know it now or if I know it in five years from now. Mm-hmm. So in a few years, you know, I might, you know, I might do it. I, I read an article about it and I thought that was kind of interesting because I think some maybe I read a post on Hacker News where somebody did that. They did it for Christmas present. <laughs> they asked their parents. <laughs> they asked their parents for it. It was like and there was like some special discount where it only cost them like three hundred or four four hundred dollars or something. Not very much. And he said he was pretty nervous. Um, in the in the post, you talking about how nervous he was opening the envelope. Yeah, I mean, I'd be so freaking. Nervous. I mean, I see. I wouldn't want. I'd rather just live in denial. Like yeah, just live in not bliss. knowing. Yeah. Bliss. Well, because like, already so much stuff has gone wrong for me that it's it's <laughs> it's bound to come back with you know really bad stuff. So it's like if a meteor is going to come to if the meteor is is or a solar flare is going to come and hit the Earth and create all kind of damage and destroy you know modern infrastructure, you'd be like, you know what? If that's coming in three years, I just assume not know. Yeah. <laughs> right? There's nothing I can do about it, and it's going to suck. And at least I can enjoy the next three years before the meteor hits. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can understand that. But I, I think that medical science is advancing so rapidly that if someone says, oh, you might have Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease in 10 to 15 years, well, Parkinson's disease may be um, curable in 15 years. Mm. You know, you just have to kind of I mean, hold on to hope and, I guess, do what you can to... Uh, to uh, to support the, to, uh, I guess I'd start funding Parkinson's research. That's probably, you know, because that's what happens a lot of times in these wealthy, you know, people, actors and, and politicians stuff, they get a disease and then all of a sudden they're like donating tens of millions of dollars mm. to the research institutes, which is, you know, which helps the cause, right? I mean, if you were worth a lot of money and some of you were, and you were uh, going to suffer from some obscure disease, <laughs> you know, you'd probably, by, by being able to donate a bunch of money to the research institute, you might be able end up being able to avoid becoming sick and you also then would help a lot of other people too hopefully plug your revenue will be up to four grand a month by then i'll be able to put in at least 
50 buck a month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hey. Um, okay, so anyway, the only thing I want to say about it is is because is, I remember having conversations about this. Like people, do you believe in like, you know, genetic engineering or what do you think? It's like, I, it's not whether I believe it or not. It's going to happen. I mean, there's mm. no avoiding it. It's like steroids in sports. There's such a huge payoff to being able to um, and give yourself an extra edge in sports, especially yeah. if people are doing for, it. For the, whole, for, you know, for, for the whole of your kid's life, it's like the biggest advantage ever. You know? Exactly. So if, if, if people are willing to compromise their health, because people, there, there are all kinds of health problems that, that result from taking steroids over an extended period of time. But let's say that you're an athlete and you're a really good college player and you're on the verge of maybe making a pro or maybe you're going to be a low-end pro, pro player and make the league minimal or you might make $5 million a year. If you could make yourself a little stronger, a little faster, then you know, you're going to do it because otherwise you're, going, you're, otherwise you're out of sports and you're selling insurance or you know, working as a day laborer or something or you're on the front of magazines making tens of millions of dollars a year, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to take it. Now, and, and it clearly happens constantly. I mean, you know, I, I read a book on uh, Ben Johnson, the, um, the sprinter. Remember Ben Johnson? He was a guy who, got, uh, who, who um, was, lost his gold medal in the Olympics. This is like back in 84, <laughs> Um, he, he beat Carl Lewis and set a world record and it turns out he was on steroids and, and everything. And I read a book written by his, uh, his coach, his sprint coach and, uh, the, the, uh, the lab director at the Seoul Olympics estimated that 80% of the track and field athletes were on steroids. He's, they, they just didn't, they just couldn't catch them. They just didn't have their, their tests just weren't good enough, but that was their estimate. About 80%. So they could catch him, but they couldn't catch everyone else. That's very interesting. Yeah, people always 80%. stay ahead of that. 80, that, I mean, they, 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 the techniques um, that, and the tricks that um, a lot of these uh, athletes use um, uh, allow them to mask, um, uh, mask the, uh, the fact that they're taking them, right? They so do. it's like you'd, you'd take two things at the same time. Maybe if you took steroids, but then you ate, like, I don't know, a pound of almonds, like you'd have, you'd have a certain blood mix-up that would make it impossible for them to track. Yeah, I think there are things like that. There are things that they can take, like masking drugs that they can take. But there are also the, it also is the fact that steroids are training drugs. So you can, you can be using steroids for six months or on and off. You cycle on and off, and then you're off for a, you know, a few weeks before the um, before the see, t- then they're out of your system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I'm, I'm not an expert on that or anything, but the, the, just, just using that as an example of the, of the motivation. Now, if there's one thing that people will spend any amount of money on, it's their kids. And you imagine, you, you, see, you know how much, you've read stories, I'm sure, about how much people will spend on getting their kids in the right preschools and the right yeah. schools and all that kind of stuff. And that's nothing of an advantage compared to, you know, giving your kid 20 more IQ points. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Making your kid, you know, extra attractive or four inches taller or not having any diseases or, you know, whatever. I mean, if, if, uh, if they develop markers for all those things, parents are going to find ways to do it. But we can't do that right now. I mean, we can't say, I want a kid who's going to be four inches taller and, t- you know, 200 IQ and all that stuff at this stage, can Not we? Yet. Not yet, but, you know... Ba- it's going to happen. The thing is that uh, scientific research is sort of exponential. Mm-hmm. And if they're already able to screen for eye color and hair color and sex, I mean, all these other things are going to start coming there. Now, obviously, it's not just a matter of screening for it. It's being able to... Do, to understand the human genome, which is that incredibly complex to determine whether, okay, is, um, um, do these genes mark 
for IQ. I mean, what is IQ anyway? There's a huge debate on what is intelligence? Is IQ measurable? What parts of the brain contribute to it? Contribute to it? How, what's the role in nature versus nurture? You know, all right. I mean, it's, it's very complicated. Nevertheless, you know, they even they get down to say, all right, well, here are these 20 markers that we think impact intelligence the most. Things like um, problem solving, memory. Okay, so, so taken to its logical extension, what that means is, is that in a thousand years, everyone will basically look the same. No, Be- because you'll because you'll all, you'll all want to be the kind of the perfect version of of humanity. Well, no, be- no, because there's no perfect version. It's just like like you know we can have any kind of food, so everybody's going to eat the best food, and therefore we all eat the same kind of food or something, or we all like the same kind of music. There's there's you know you can take everybody likes different things, but you'll you'll probably have. People will generally probably be much more resilient to disease. They'll probably be on average taller, on average smarter, on average better looking. I mean, did you see these things? There's some stuff on the web that showed like they they took like 20 or 30 facial face uh, pictures, like a profile pictures um, of people from all these different regions of the world and they superimposed them on each other. And so they averaged out the differences and they said the the average look for like Ireland versus Uzbekistan for Japan and Chile or whatever. And it showed what they looked like. And all these, you know, there were all these girls and they were gorgeous. They were just composite pictures, right? Because all it did is, is it averaged out the asymmetries in people's faces and they all looked different. I mean, they were all, gorgeous in different ways like the average the average french girl was gorgeous but she looked different than the average ukrainian girl mm-hmm. but they they were but because they because beauty to a large degree has to do with symmetry so yeah. well that's, you know, as we discussed we discussed that a few times we with the whole golden mean thing yeah yeah so yeah right yeah, yeah you, you brought that up a couple of times that's right so um i the, there'll be lots of differences but uh there'll, there'll be lot <laughs> there'll be many fewer asymmetries People who probably average be more symmetrical in their look and whatever. But I think, I think in the end it'll be a good thing because a lot of our problems as a society, as a, as a, as a species, is the fact that I think we're still kind of too stupid. I think that's why wars start and people hate each other and we do lots of stupid, nasty things is because we're just not quite on average smart enough. I think if we were an average 70, 80 IQ point smarter, we'd probably be able to work this stuff out a little better. That's an interesting perspective. That's an interesting take on it. That's yeah. a very positive take on it. I don't know if everyone would if, if everyone would say that. I mean, uh, what was that recent film um, with the guy? Yeah. You you went to see it with the guy who gets you know racist IQ. Yeah, Limitless, right? I, I mean, love he, that movie. <laughs> he, he he doesn't become benevolent. I mean, he's he's all about. Does it? Is he? And yeah, yeah. In the end, oh, he's, in the end. Okay, so you so we'll all have to go through this personal journey of kind of like, you know. Being bank robbers, <laughs> really clever bank robbers, and getting no, loads of I, money, and then finally will evolve to uh, you know being nice and benevolent. No, I, I think if you look at, <laughs> I think if you look at criminals and criminal behavior, I mean, it's rare that any significant portion of the criminal population have really high IQs. I mean, you could argue that I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, what about no, the best? No, it's, it's like the average IQ I think of prisoners is like eighty or something like that. But the best, I mean, aren't the best? You know, like people like Matt. I mean, it's it's. It's it's anti-personality disorder and usually very, very clever people who are the mass murderers, like the, you know, the Mansons. Like Bundy and Manson. No, I'm not saying there are outliers, okay? And the reason that they, and the reason that they were so successful in killing so many people probably is because they were smart, right? Yeah, they they were smart with no, 
with no kind of care in the world about what they were doing. Yeah. Okay. But here's the thing, though. If you're if you're being a, if you're able to um, genetically test and alter a genome for IQ, you certainly can probably um, alter for things like personality disorders and psychoses and neuroses and things as well. Right. Well, Those that's things. Inter- I mean, that's interesting. I don't know if that's because I mean, because then you're getting into the whole kind of nurture versus nature. I mean, the, it, in psychology, which which my wife's heavily involved in, um, she has like tons of different books doing huge amounts of research and they very very undecided about you know where where our traits come from whether they are genetic or whether they I, I don't know I've read a lot of stuff about that too and obviously not as I'm sure as not as much as your wife but it seems to me there's a lot of political uh, influence in terms of people want to believe that there's more nature and uh, more nurture in it right that that genetics isn't destiny but <laughs> I don't know I'm I'm definitely on the fence that nature has a lot more to do it maybe if you're on the bubble or you have very extreme um, nurture situation. You have a very negative environment or an extremely positive supportive environment. Maybe it can push you one way or the other. But but I, but I mean, this, I mean, well, then how do you account for the fact that most sexual predators were sexually abused themselves? I mean, yeah. Well, like what like what I would say is that um, you know, you, if you take people who have um, certain types of um, a mental, you know, let's say a, a brain structure, right, some sort of genetically predisposed to lack empathy or have stuff and those people are abused, right? Mm-hmm. Then you're going to end up with the result of a monster. If those people aren't abused and they're, and they're brought up in a normal household with, with loving parents, they're probably just fine. You know, they might just turn out to be sort of less empathetic than your normal person. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think genetic engineering is going to happen. There's no stopping it. It's just like scientific advancement. And it, it may come in fits and spurts and there'll be attempts to regulate it, but there's just too much advantage for individuals. Um, to uh, that they're going to be perpetually incentivized to uh, want to pursue it. Yeah, I think I'm I'm inclined to agree with you. I'm inclined to agree with you on this one. So I guess that was our uh, fringe science segment. <laughs> <laughs> that goes into fringe science. All right. <laughs> so one thing I wanted to bring up was um, I was thinking about the Apignite password security because of someone something someone said on Startup Guild. Okay. And um, I'm not sure if you have or haven't already thought of this. But basically, we were talking about salt and, and that, that whole side of thing and where we would keep the key. You know, would that be on the server, et cetera? Right. I kind of thought, well, why don't we just use the password as the salt? Because if you use the password as a salt, then the salt's invisible. It's not kept anywhere. And, you know, you basically then have 100% invisible salt to the users. So there's no way that they could decrypt it. Yeah. So I think the way we do it is we generate a random number that's assault, and it's an it's assault for every single um, password. So every every user has their own individual salt, mm-hmm. and that's stored. That is hashed together along with the password itself. Okay, but you but you still need to store it somewhere. Yeah. you still no, need no, to store so, that salt. So you, you know, but the salt the salt is stored as part of the hash. Okay, and you you could dissect the salt, but that's fine because the salt is just makes it so that you can't use a rainbow table um, on every single um, user, right? It, it, it just makes it uh, that much more expensive um, because otherwise you can just do a test of like, if you do rainbow attack, you have every, say, password that's... No, no I, I get it. But what I'm saying is for ultimate, ultimate security, you can go one stage further and have an invisible salt, which is the password itself. So basically you do MD5 password comma password and then the password acts as the salt for the password, and then you just store the resulting MD5, and then 
that's the the safest possible thing you could ever have. Okay, well, first of all, you don't want to use MD5 because MD5 is 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 incredibly inexpensive computationally. So you want to use something like Bcrypt or SHA-512 or something. That's ex, that's an expensive hash. So you don't want to do that. And you also want to use stretching just to throw that in there. So you want to iterate, you know, the number of iterations. So you run like, you know, Bcrypt on the result of Bcrypt on the result of that, you know, five. Uh, yeah, five so, so the only point I'm making is rather than having the salt stored somewhere, anywhere on your system in plain text, which you, which you need to with the method you're using. Um, just use the password as salt, and then you don't even have that. So it's it's just the safest possible scenario. Well, I mean, the other thing we say is if someone uses it's the problem with people with passwords is everybody uses really basic, simple passwords. If you look at like the top thousand passwords, they're all ridiculous, right? And those are all those are all there are rainbow table tags for all of those that include all those passwords. So if someone says, okay, well. We'll just create a rainbow table, and we'll and we'll we'll use your encryption, and we'll we'll know that you're going to use the same password um, as we'll MD5 that the the typical password, and we'll just follow the follow the same procedure you did. We'll just use the same typical password. But they but they, then they've got to do like let's say you've let's say you've stretched it three times, then like. It's it's still impossible for them to calculate that. Backwards. Well, no, you still you still have to know the salt before uh, you, you, the salt has to be. Um, you you have to know the salt before you run the. Uh, yeah, exactly. So so it's impossible. So the salt, to some degree, has to be public, right? For you, no, not, not public no. to public, but it has to be public to the algorithm to be able to um, to be able to to be able to use it with whatever they enter as their password to compare against their stored hashed version. That's right. So if you use the password right as the salt. It's public to the degree that it's only input by the user at the time that they are requesting the, the password comparison. So it's public because it comes in from the form, and but it's not stored anywhere in your system, so you don't need it public anywhere. Yeah, that said, but I, like, I, like, but like I mentioned, if I know what procedure you're using to you, store it, like if you're if you're using MD5, if I can if I can look if I can look at your code. Right. If I can yeah. go, if I access your code and I say, okay, well, he's using MD5 and he stretch and you know stretches it ten times or a hundred times, whatever. I can just go, okay, well, we'll just do that. And, and I know that you're using your password as your salt, and I can. Run. But you don't know what my password is. No, so but no, but I can. No, but I can do the rainbow table attack. I can for all the most basic passwords, and I'll probably get a ton of your passwords out because you know most of your users are still going to use you know insecure passwords. How will you get the? How will you do the rainbow table attack? Because it's it's stretched three times. So the rainbow table attack won't won't give you anything because you've you've encrypted it a few times and plus also well, first of all if you, you encrypt it you don't want to do three times you want to encrypt, you want to you want to stretch it like a thousand times okay okay but the the point is is like that you can't do the rainbow table attack in any way once you use a salt that's unknown so I, I would um it would be way easier to to break what you're doing than I think if you stored a uh, say 160 bit randomly uh, generated number as a salt, individual salt for every user and use that. It, w- it wouldn't be easier. It wouldn't because, because basically if you're, if you're generating your random number to use a salt, you have to store your random number in plain text somewhere in your system. You, you, yeah. The- yeah. You, you, you store it alongside as part of the hash is like a public, it's sort of like a public part of it. Yeah. But so, so therefore they can see that number. Right, that's they can fine. get access to that. That's fine, but every number is going to be so different than every other number that it would be hard to come up with any pre-computation that would allow that. But if I knew what computation you were using, but, but hold procedure, on. You're, think, you're, you're ignoring the fact that people could hack into the system and get access to the actual data. Like what 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 I'm talking about is the ultimate security because 
even if someone hacks into the system, downloads your entire database, there's no way that they can understand how to undecrypt it because there's nothing on the system stored there in plain text showing me what the salt was. Yeah, I mean, there is when you, re- if they can get, if I can get your register page and, and it's just when you create an account and, and it's where you very, you hash the password, I know what procedure you're using. I know you're using MD5, you suggested it a hundred times and you're using your password as your, as your, uh, as a hashed version of your password, a hashed version of your password as your salt. I know that's what you're doing. So if I know that, then I can say, okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to run a rainbow table attack with that procedure on the, you know, hundred. You, ca- you can't, you can't run a rainbow table attack. Well, rainbow table attack is just pre-calculating the procedure, right? And storing it in a, in a giant. Uh, okay. Okay. So, so let's, so let's say it's been stretched a thousand times, right? And I, I run a rainbow table attack on the first, on, on the first iteration of that stretch. And I, it, it gives me back a word, like a word. What's, what's it going to get? How am I going to know? But I need to do it again. Here's the thing: if I have access to your register page, I know exactly how many times you stretched it, right? So I, let's say I let's say I know you stretched it a thousand times. Okay, I right. know the exact procedure you use. So I'm going to run that exact same procedure on a thousand of the most common passwords, and I'm going to get a lot of your user accounts that way. If I know your procedure and I know you're not introducing any uh, any, uh, I don't see what difference that is to 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 storing the the. Um, to, to doing what you're doing. I don't see how that's any different whatsoever. Um, other than, other than having an extra layer of security that basically because I'm not show, I'm not showing the salt anywhere on the system. I have to think about this for a second. I'm pretty sure it's a problem. I'm going to talk about this on uh, in live because I may be not thinking about it correctly, but I think if, if, if every salt is unique, is a uniquely long random number that's not guessable, um, then it's, but you can see the salt like, like the only way, the only way you can unlock it is to have the salt, right? I, the I only way let's, can... let's 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 uh, wait for some feedback from a security expert on this because <laughs> I'm sure this is not the most fun thing to listen to. You and I just <laughs> all right, fine. No. <laughs> I'll give you I, back. It's all right. I, you know, you you think it's more secure? I think it's uh, not secure at all. Uh, let's see what a security. If you're a security expert and you listen to this, or you have some expertise on it, I know we have a couple of listeners that do. Please uh, leave a comment on the blog and uh, let us know. What this? What your <laughs> thoughts are on the subject? <laughs> okay, so uh, thank you. Yeah, Let's move on Let's, to something else. What's what, go on? What have you got? Um. Oh, speaking of of uh, of hacking, um, anonymous goes after Sony. It makes it personal. So I guess I guess there's some um, there's some people that are being sued. Um. Or you know, for huge sums of money for cracking. Um. For using cracked versions of uh, PS3 games or something. Yeah, and anonymous is decide is decided to attack Sony in retribution for this. So this is like if you if you took like a fifty dollar game and you cracked it and you know and then and then Sony comes after you and was you know trying to sell trying to sue you for like half a million dollars or something like that, then you can see how people would think that that is absolutely unfair. This yeah. totally um, uh, the, the the punishment is way beyond the crime. Yeah, totally. So, and 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 I I don't think that's too controversial. Probably among people in the technology community to think that you know these uh, the record and motion industry associations trying to sue people for obscene amounts of money to make example of them so nobody else will do it. Yeah, it's still unfair, right? I mean, if if you rob a drugstore for ten dollars ten dollars of candy and then they throw you in prison for a year, I mean that's going to make people outraged. Well, but what what uh, 
I mean, what are Anonymous doing to Sony? So what is so- what 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 the Anonymous is doing is they're going after not Sony. Well, they are DD, um, DDSing or was it? DDoSing the, uh, the some of the Sony sites, but they're going after the individual executives within Sony. They are going after finding all their public information and and basically getting creating all kind of harassment for them. So they're finding information on their on their wives, on them, on their kids, where they go to school, where their parents, where their kid parents, show, where they. Uh, but that's 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 a bit over the top, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I mean, here's this is kind of an interesting thing. I mean, I think you got to be careful about you know. Uh, not not going after the kids, but scaring the parents that you have information on the kids. That's scary, right? That mm. people act irrational. Right? Irrationally. Yeah. However, if I'm an executive at some company, right, Justin, and I decide because I'm a big company and because I don't like something you're doing, I'm going to sue your ass into bankruptcy, right? I'm going to give your wages garnished. I'm basically going to ruin your life, right? But because I'm behind a corporation, you can't do anything to me. That's kind of unfair, right? So, so it's what, what Anonymous is doing. It's like, all right, you know, you're going to go after individuals. We're going to go after individuals. We're going to go after you, not just your company, because we can't fight lawyer to lawyer. So we're going to use an asymmetric attack. It's just kind of like how in history, smaller armed forces, smaller armies that are outmanned, you know, 10 to 1 have often beaten big forces because they used asymmetric guerrilla attacks. They didn't go mono. They didn't go big army against big army and, and some big field. They said, all right, well, we're going to have to do different things, use different. So, it's, so they're going for guerrilla warfare, but I mean, what outcome can they expect to happen? I mean, well, yeah. have you, I mean, have you ever met a guy who runs like a, a billion dollar company? I mean, they are basically fearless. No, they don't, not, they don't no, take not. those kind of threats. No, not. Well, yeah, no, I, humans are humans, you know, they're not, they're not superhuman. They're just people. And as long as people think they can get away with doing stuff and not be um, and get their way and not and not have anyone anything done against them, it's basic game theory, right? If if I defect, if I go to screw you and you do nothing about it, then I'll just do it anytime I want, right? Because I'm because I'm you know I'm a big shot, right? Because I can get away with it. But if all of a sudden you can't do, you can't get away with it, you're going to be disincentivized to do it. So it's like if people think that they can um, share music, share crack video games, crack software, and get away with it, then they're going to keep doing it. But then if all of a sudden these big corporations come in and, 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 and use the government to help them out and sue all these people and throw them in jail, then guess what? People are disincentivized to do it. Likewise, if um, you have these big hacker communities like Anonymous go after executives, say, all right, well, fine, you can do that, but now we're going to do this. Now we're going to go after you and make your life hell. So next time you're in a boardroom meeting and you're talking about, well, we're going to go and use our lawyers and we're going to sue all these kids, you might be a little less incentivized to do that. You're like, you know what? I don't know if I need the grief because they're going to come after me. They're going to come to my family. And so they're going to be a little le- more reasonable in how they try and deal with it. So what, what specific type of things are they actually doing? I mean, like that they have the data and then they send an email, like a kind of ransom note email saying, if you do this again, we'll, we'll publish this, this detail. I, don't I, mean, know. I think they were talking about, they were going like the, they were like ordering 20 pizzas to the guy's house, you know, kind of annoying things, but just the kind of stuff you probably wouldn't want to deal with. You know, I mean, it's like, if, if you, because they're using a little bit of social engineering and a little bit, like they can find out where people shopped. They can call all the flat, like the guy they were calling all the flower shops around where this guy lived and where his wife probably bought flowers and then ordering a bunch of, you know, stuff and ordering, you know. So just showing that they can really be kind of in their whole life and they can, can understand everything you, about it. can them. make your life a real annoyance. So the next time you go to a board meeting and you're like, well, we're going to sue these 10 kids for a million dollars and send a couple of them to jail, as an example, you might think twice about it. Right? I'd think twice about it. I would want that grief. <laughs> right? I mean, it's all fair. I mean, everybody, can, you know, it's like, you know, into, you know, it's like, 
corporations can act like assholes and people can act like assholes, individuals. And it's just know that you, nobody's immune from that. And I, that's one thing that's why I, I support things like WikiLeaks and, and Anonymous because they kind of, they balance the scales a little bit, you know, because you have big corporations and big governments, they get used to having so much power and it gets abused. And I don't know. I, I, the problem with the whole approach that Anonymous takes, I have to agree with Adam McCurry on this. I feel like it's completely playing into the hands of, of censors and regulators because basically it just, what will end up happening is uh, it'll just help Congress push through laws that will censor normal people and probably won't make any difference to people like Anonymous. Anonymous will still be able to do the hacking, but normal people will have much less um, freedom on the internet. So, that, that's so a risk, me, right? I mean, it's, it's always a risk. So that's, that's the thing. That's the, they probably don't want to do certain things that would play well on the media. So bringing people's kids into it, even if it's just to like freak the parents out a little bit, like, oh, by the way, we know where your kids went to school. Yeah, that's a, that's a mistake. I mean, they're not doing anything illegal, but they do freak the parents out, right? And if that's the kind of thing that could play on CNN or whatever, and everybody's like, oh my God, they're targeting kids. And, and, then, and then all of a mm. sudden you have this huge overreaction um, to, the, uh, to the threat, right? It was a non-threat, but it, pl- it, it would be a story that would have legs. So I can see what Adam Curry is talking about. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, Right now, the um, I think the government, both the left and the right, Democrats and Republicans, are so co-opted by um, by industries, by corporations, by lobbyists that people, you know, are you know, it's it's, it's what we call inverted totalitarianism. I mean, it's not run by the people; it's it's mostly dictated by um, by corporate interests of one kind or another, special interests of one type or another that can can hire lobbyists and can, you know, either we give you money in your campaigns or we don't. If you don't have the money, you don't win. And if you don't follow along, you don't play ball with what we're going to do, you're not going to win your next race and you're out of a job, right? So when that's the case, um, the government isn't really responsive to people. It's responsive to corporations. And so you have things like, you know, what, you know, Sony would do and can get away with. And so you have to have some kind of counterbalancing force. And you're right, maybe it's short-sighted. I mean, maybe in this way it would, it would, May, might disincentivize Sony to keep pushing because some of the executives decide or get tired of, of dealing with it. But you, you may be right also that the cure from the, the, the government will overreact and the cure from, from their, the reaction from them might be too negative for everybody else. So. I mean, wouldn't they, wouldn't they be better served to put <clears throat> their collective anonymous brain power together <clears throat> and basically build peer-to-peer network that makes it 100% impossible to track down? To track down what? To track down the people who are doing piracy. So basically make it easier to pirate? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's... Make it, make it not easier, but make it, it's already easy. Make it more secure. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I mean, that's... I, I, I don't know how I think about that. I don't know if that's a good idea or not. I mean, it's... it's, it's yeah. I wish I had a. I wish I had something to say on that. I just don't. Um, but uh, <laughs> I just uh, the bigger problem is, of course, I think that you know the the how how do you solve the problem with governments being co opted by corporations and special interests, right? I mean, how yeah. do you how to you know it's whether it's a pharmaceutical or the telecommunications or record industry, record motion picture industries or uh, the defense Department of Defense. I mean, or defense industry. If you if you considered like launching a second podcast which is like a political podcast <laughs> just for you that you can find some other guy who who's kind of interested in the political <laughs> stuff i'm not saying that i'm completely not interested but i'm just saying that you are very very interested in it. i think a tiny bit more than me i'd say a um, lot more than you yeah I, I read a lot about you know but the problem is funny i just had lunch yesterday with uh 
my buddy uh, Pat Maddox, who eventually yeah. came the show, and we were talking about this stuff. And the problem is with the all, all the po- political stuff is that there's nothing really as individuals. There's not much we can do about it, right? From a game theoretic standpoint, I mean, what's the most rational thing for me to spend my time on to improve the, my life, the life of my family, life of my friends? Building Epic Night. Yeah, exactly. It's it's, it's doing consulting work, building Epic Night. Um, spending time with my wife and kids. Yeah, but if you if you're idealistic and passionate about something, you should. I mean, look, that's why startup startup guild exists because I'm idealistic and passionate about the idea of everyone becoming financially free and running their own business. And so I've decided to put a little bit of my time and effort into that. Yeah, that's okay. you know, if you're if you're very passionate about politics in that way, what's to stop you doing See, something I'm not, similar? I'm not I'm not interested in politics so much in that like, gee, who's going to win this race? No, no, no. You but you're interested in the injustice. You know, I mean, the, the kind of, uh, yeah, I guess I'm yeah. interested in the endemic uh, corruption. That's exactly, that, that, exactly. That, that, that I hate being lied to and I hate things being manipulated. And I hate the fact that when I look at the mainstream media and versus things that I know aren't true and I, that people believe it, I'm just like, like, it was like funny. I just, just one thing, just an example. I, I was, at, I was at the gym the other day and you know, have the TVs up everywhere. And for mm-hmm. two hours when I'm working out, the only thing they had on CNN with Anderson Cooper, we were with his very concerned look was talking about the alleged rape of one woman in uh, Olivia. As if that's the reason why we're attacking Libya. Two hours. That's all we're talking about. We're not talking about like who are these thousand gorillas and who's supporting them and why are we in there? Why did the CAA have guys in the ground in back in February? You know, I mean, I mean, you know, we've talked about being in their days. It's going to weeks and months. I mean, it's just like nobody's talking about the real questions. So why are we in Libya and not in the Congo? Or- Would you consider starting a, a, a chat show about that stuff? I don't know because there are other people doing it. You don't have so much time, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, so we, we're talking about, so, so I, I'm talking about this with Pat and it's like, you know, it's like I, I can get irate about some of this stuff and I can talk to a dozen <laughs> of my friends and they're all like, yeah, it's a nightmare. But even if a hundred thousand, even if you're able to convince a hundred thousand people or half a million people that there's, there's just so much corruption right now, what's going on and, and that, that we're not going to fix any of our problems until people understand what's really what's going on, you know, um, in the media and in politics, then nothing's going to happen. Right. I could I could imagine you being like a Rush Limbaugh, except from the opposite a side. A Rush of the Limbaugh, fence. Oh. except for the except for the opposite side of the fence. The opposite side, like a left wing. I'm not. Yeah. I I'm not. I'm not left wing though. Yeah, but I, you know what I mean. I okay, mean like, like a, a uh, libertarian, like a. I, I if I'm not I'm nothing. I, you're I kind of confusing because you're libertarian, but at the same time, I'm not. Um, I'm not libertarian. I'm nothing. I I, I I refuse to join any party because I just see so much. <laughs> I mean, you, know. you know what? The only way you'd join a party is if you started it. Probably right. Just like software. The only way you're going to use software is if you build it. Not right? much of a joiner. It never <laughs> have been. But yeah, I, I don't, uh, I'm not, uh, I mean, I, I, if I was closer to anything, I'd probably be closer to libertarian than anything else. But the thing is like libertarianism, like in these other parties, it's like, I don't really, I don't know the entire platform in and inside now. So I can't say I agree with everything. That's the problem with when our politics is everyone says, oh, I'm a Democrat or a Republican. But it's like, you know, then you turn your brain off and you just like agree with everything they do. I mean, it's like, no, you need to think about everything policy issue by policy issue. What do you think about this? Don't just carry the water for one group, you know? Anyway, that's, we should move off something else. All right. So, um, I'll, I'll talk about, uh, just give a quick little update on plug revenue. Right. Move from a really kind of weighty, hefty topic <laughs> to a, a kind of small little topic. Right. Um, so first nine days in April, uh, $539. Okay. First nine days in March. Oh, that's right. I've got that the wrong way around. 
well, I, I said it in the wrong way around. First, first nine days in March, $451. First nine days in April, 539 What's that percentage-wise? What's the ratio? Um, it's about, in fact, just give me one second. I'll tell you exactly. 16% growth. That's not bad. And so what was it the month before that? Uh, so it was, okay, so going back from December, 241 in December, 280 in January, 353 in February, 451 in March, 539 in April. I like that trend. It's a good trend, isn't it? money on that trend. If that, if that was a stock. <laughs> You'd put money on that trend. <laughs> I'd buy that trend, yeah. I'd, I'd put some money on that sucker, you know, because. It's, it's not too bad. I mean, you know, I. I mean, I don't know if it's going to go all the way to, you know, 100,000, but it might very well go to a couple thousand. We'll see. I mean, that's good five, six month trend. Yeah. So what's, so what accounts for that trend? Like we've, I think we've talked about this in the past. We don't have to go too into it, but essentially it's funnel optimization. Is that right? Funnel optimization and marketing site. And it could be better. I'm, I'm sure I can make it better, especially if I can go down the Nosby route of, of doing the 60 day money back thing. Um, the reason why I'm hesitant to do that is because it involves such a big change regarding affiliates. So, because what I would have to, like, the, essentially, there is no easy way to give money to, to kind of des- decide whether it's the right time to give the money to affiliates or not. Right. So now it just gives money to affiliates when money's captured because there's no refund. Right. But basically, if I've got the 60-day refund, then I've got to create this new interstitial process, which is you know, money for affiliates goes on hold for right. 60 days. So it's not a matter of flipping a switch. You got to write some code. Yeah. It's, and it's pretty painful. I mean, I would have thought that to build it in. It, so there's two things. First of all, the messaging on the whole site, like I'm going to have to create this flip switch uh, so that I can flip out the messaging to be either 30 day free trial or 60 days money back. Right. That's, that's a big deal. And then also some kind of interstitial thing for affiliates is a big deal. So it's probably like at least a week's worth of coding. So that's kind of what's keeping me off it, even though I'm sure it would really amp revenue. You're sure it would? If you're sure it would, then you, sh- you might you might consider doing it. I, I, if you well, think it yeah. would, maybe it's, I don't know. I think it would. I think it would. I mean, it's true. It's, I guess, I guess it could just work for Nosby and it may not work for Blogio. you know? Could just be a test. And you think it, it would really take a week? How many hours? You, you think it would be like what? If, if a week of what? Like a few hours a day or a week of? I think it's going to take a week of like my kind of half days that I can put into blog area. Well, you know, I think of like with a lot of the stuff is go for the um, go for the low hanging fruit first. So if there are other things yeah. that you can do that don't, isn't going to require that much time that you think could um, tweak it up a bit, do those things first. But when you start running out of stuff to do that's going to increase uh, either traffic or conversion rate, then then then. Well, when I've got startup, you know, basically hanging out on startup guild, talking to everyone, taking up so much of my mind share, it's hard for me to do anything. (laughs) So I'm kind of like, I've seriously had the madness about startup guild. Like I've just been totally obsessing about it. Yeah. I didn't really do anything in startup guild the first few days. The last couple of days I've, I've put some messages here and there and I tell you, it's a little distracting. <laughs> it's like Twitter. it is a little. It's like Twitter. Yeah. Facebook is for people. I mean, I haven't. I have not really done Twitter. I'm not really done. I'm not on Facebook at all. I mean, I guess I have a, a default account where I accept friend requests, but I never. I don't use it ever. Um, so those don't think. But I, I noticed. I'm like, well, you know, like any of these social network, any social network you get involved in can be a time suck. If you're not careful. Mm-hmm. So I just need to pull back to more of a level that you're at, and be a little bit less obsessive about it well just turn it off just turn the damn thing i don't have it open and say all right i'll open it once in the morning you know for 15 20 minutes respond a couple things open it once like maybe during lunchtime and then open it you maybe at night you do like maybe another 15 20 minutes but that's it yeah you can turn it off on your screen but you can't turn it off in your mind 
Well, I guess yeah. right because you're you're doing more than just participating. At you're you're thinking about a lot of other issues. So, mm. but so just um, continuing a little bit with Plugio. So you know the way that I had this guy writing blog content every day, right? So he's been putting that out there, and it's interesting. Like it's a great stream of blog content. It's really interesting stuff. But so far, I mean, we're about thirty days into it. The actual original thing that I did where. I, you know, I've got that page, top five tweeters in each industry, and I, I put, I've created like a hundred pages. Mm-hmm. That the the and I showed that to Pat you know, on you know live on the show. I showed that to Patrick McKenzie, and he's like, "Oh, that doesn't seem very good. I don't think Google's going to be interested in that." Right. That's actually brought in more SEO traffic than any of the blog stuff that was written. Huh. So the blog stuff seems to bring in about two people a day so far, <laughs> and that other stuff is bringing in, you know, I don't know, like five to ten people a day. And if so, if I was to amp, if I was to kind of scale that out to like you know a thousand uh, different pages, then I think that may have a, a kind of better effect. But it could also be the amount of time that the, the content's been out there. Maybe it needs more time. Needs to be on Google. How, how much longer has that um, has each respective content been live? Like a month longer. The other stuff. Okay, so why don't you give this another month and compare yeah. the numbers? You know, for each of them for two months in. A month and a yeah. two months and see. At that point, at that point, you can maybe have a, a be a little be a little. It'll be a little more like comparing apples to apples. I mean, there might be some yeah. other issues that you that you would have to consider. I, I don't really know enough about it, but at least you would know. And if it if it looks like the other one, if um, well, I don't know how you describe that. There's the blog content. What's the other stuff called? It's basically it's my kind of horizontal uh, content. So basically, it's like the top five tweeters about. Uh, tennis. The top five tweeters about this about. Okay, that. so your top five, your your top five content. Yeah, top so, five content. Yeah. So then maybe what you do is um you double your you double down on that and 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 cut the other one in half or something, you know. Well, because my top five content, I mean, a couple of days work and I could have a thousand pages out. Yeah. Well, that sounds like that might be worth some some time. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe not do a thousand, but maybe double it. You know, maybe just spend a couple hours, just something trivial. Just turn off Startup Guild for two hours <laughs> and, and do that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's cool. Well, that's good. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's nice that it's, it's growing. So, I mean, All right. So, so what's going on with Appignite? This has been a bad week for Appignite. I did not work oh, on it for three days straight because of my consulting work. Damn that consulting work, Justin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just got behind. I just have... You know, uh, you know, a few contracts and, and that were requiring mean, three or four, four contracts and trying to juggle. And that's just the, that's the, that's the trouble with uh, con- consulting work is you, you, it's usually dangerous to say no to stuff because you don't know if the stuff you have is going to disappear. So you kind of want to accommodate as much of it as you can, but then it's just going to take up a lot of time. And the more you have, there's more context switching, the more context switching, as we know from, you know, running multiple you know, processes or processors is that you have sort of context switching co- friction costs, right? Yeah. So it's like if I have if, if I have one if I have one contract and I work on that four or five hours a day and then I can just work on it and then when I'm done I'm done and then go on Appignite. That's much easier than if I have like emails from this client and emails from that client. And I got to get this other stuff in. And you're just, it's all the meta stuff that basically bogs you down. It does. I mean, the coding does, but it's you know it's, I, I find it hard to jump in and jump out of thinking about an individual problem. I'm not mm-hmm. good at that. I mean, I'm, I'm, there are probably some people who are pretty good at that, and they can just work on something for an hour, and then just they they just turn it off. They shut the tabs, they shut the, the you know the folders and the browser and the code windows down, and they open something up, and they're immediately into it. I'm not. Sometimes I'm just like I just 
I have a huge context, which I can just go for 15, 20 minutes, maybe an hour. I'm just not into the second one. I'm just checking Hacker News and I'm checking my email. I go, you know, I, I just can't get going on the other project. And then that just ends up being a big time waste. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if there's a solution to it. I mean, I guess the solution would be don't take on a lot of clients. I mean, just be just I might have to be riskier and just only have one or two contracts and then just um, hope <laughs> that they don't get canceled and I'm not left with nothing. But um, yeah, it's just, it's just, that makes it tough. So I didn't get a lot done. I, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, Guyon and I um, were working on, because um, on he, he and I are, kind of do some of the consulting work together. Mm-hmm. He, um, even though he has a full-time job, he likes to do a little work on the weekends to make some extra cash. And he does some consulting work for Uber, like me. And he's, um, I'm doing the real-time dispatching system in Node.js, and he's building a Node.js um, sort of adapter to the Mongo DB native drivers that are, uh, yeah. you know, because if like the, if the node, if the dispatcher goes down and, or I mean, if the dispatcher is running, but, but Mongo goes down, then what do we do with the data? And he has all kinds of ways of caching the data, temporary journaling and all these kinds of stuff to make sure that we're, we never lose anything. And so he's writing all that stuff. So we're trying to interface our code. So like yesterday and the day before, I'm like, I, yeah, we just need to like work on this together for a little bit and get synced up. Um, which sucked because, you know, nothing happened on Epic Night. So I was sort of frustrated. So how, how's Uber coming along? Is it, I mean, uh, basically, are you just kind of refactoring what it already does? No, it no, no, no. So their initial, the initial version of their dispatching system. So for any of our listeners who don't know, Uber is a um, system where people can, on their Android or iPhone, can get an app where they can open it up and it'll show all the available town cars or lemos in the uh, in your vicinity and you can just click on it and it'll say okay this limo will pick you up in six minutes it's you know, two miles away or whatever and you get on it and it, pay, it costs about twice as much as a cab but you know it's a limo and if you know if you're in certain environments you know you're out on a date or you're it's late and you come back from the airport and you want to you know whatever it's raining and there's no cabs like a, um, a limo something like this is is, is great so um I wrote. I, I, they they built the initial version of dispatching system. So when you have these um, these these uh, mobile apps, they're every four seconds they're pinging the server, sh- updating where their location is, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're not persistent connections. They have to they they call in and 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 if there are any messages that need to be transmitted from the central server down to the app, that's when it uh, that's when it gets it right. Calls in here, you know, pulls in any messages. So. You know, you have all, all the drivers of all the town cars and limos. They have. Um, they have an app that's on and all of the clients who might be looking or waiting for a pickup have it. And so you have to mm-hmm. coordinate which driver gets dispatched to where, who's on a dri- who's driving, who's not, who's unavailable. You know, you have all this sort of logic that has to happen and all this dispatching system. So they, they built the initial version of that just using PHP and MySQL and then they had a cron job that would check and see other stuff. Um, but that's like having major scaling issues. And, and that's a great like version one, right? Just get something up and running. And when, when Travis asked me to come in and help out, I said, well, I really think this is something that would be best be done with something like Node.js um, because it's, it, Node, Node would be a persistent process at running. It would, it would, can have, it would contain in memory you know, objects representing each, each dr- uh, driver, client, and trip that's live in memory. Right. What happens if the um, system goes down? Are you are you kind of logging logging everything? Yes, we're logging anything, and then we're having like multiple versions of the um, of the dispatchers. We have like you know failover. So if one goes down, the other one can pick up, and we have, we are, we're spending a lot of time on that. 
because uh, so so how long before you guys are going to roll that out to the proper uber infrastructure to well production? We got, part of it is rolled out already what we call the connection node which is what curtis is working on curtis is sort of like the i don't know what his role is he's like director of engineering or something and he's the one i'm primarily working with and yeah. he's been working on something he calls a connection node which is what that which is sort of like your maybe your equivalent of like a load balancer it move mm-hmm. it, it it directs traffic to the right dispatching um server and I'm writing the dispatching server, and Guyon is working sort of on the MongoDB um, stuff. Hmm. So um, we're working on the dispatcher, but the, the dispatching system is very complicated, and it's you got to be very careful because if there's any kind of error, it could screw things up for people big time. So um, we're going to. So is it no, is it nice working in a team like that? Because a lot of the time you're working on your own. Well, you know, I, I normally work with Guyon on App Ignite, which I like. Uh, yeah. I like Curtis is a really cool guy, smart, and he's you know, fun to work with. So yeah, I like working with him. Um, and he's actually going to be flying down here for a few days. So he's going to actually stay in a hotel and just, we're going to pair program for three or four days here. That's, oh, nice. You know, so that'll be fun because we want to roll out the, um, we want to roll out the new dispatching server. So um, having him here together, we, we can, and then we'll have guy on kind of on Skype. So the three of us will just kind of hammer it out and get things up. Mm-hmm. But it's cool. I mean, Node.js is cool. Mongo is cool neat stuff although it's funny because we were on startup guild uh someone asked a question about it and um and uh, and uh, we were going back and forth about uh you know you how hard it is to writing asynchronous style yeah. coding because no js is everything's asynchronous you don't do write blocking calls you don't have threads so everything has to be done through a callback and if 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 any given instance it's usually just like one callback one asynchronous callback and then you're off doing return back to your your main thread but when you have like three or four things that have to happen in sequence and they're all asynchronous, it can get really confusing looking at the code. It's like, okay, so this is a callback, and when this happens, and this has to call this other thing, it's hard to, it's hard, it gets really messy. Yeah. So I can understand how some people look at that and they're like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's pretty. I mean, I, I get it. I mean, I, I, I can, I can see there are some um, libraries that help ameliorate that. There's, uh, there's some, some node fibers and something called Step that do some things to make it so that you can write it like it's like it's synchronous code. But um, so, I mean, you, now that you've used Node.js, I mean, do you kind of recommend it? What kind of projects do you recommend it for? I think it's best used for what you would term soft real-time systems. Now, I wouldn't use it for a real-time trading platform, <laughs> where it's like if right. something because of the garbage collection, like if you're trying to get quotes and trades, and it's like it's off by ten milliseconds, you like lose money or something, or yeah. I mean, you can't do that. But for what we're doing for like, you know, like if you had like chat programs or maybe even like a web-based, you know, multiplayer video game, you could even do it. Um, or for like, you know, the dispatching system that we're using, um, you know, stuff that's, you know, if something gets delayed a half a second or 100 milliseconds or something, it's not a, it's not a big deal. But you want things to be basically real-time-ish, <laughs> you know. Okay. So real-time-ish is great. For Node.js, it's cool. so. So, would you 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 would you recommend it for like writing a website or something, or building something like App Ignite? I don't know. No, I don't know about that. I, actually, I have something on my browser. Somebody um, uh, was talking about how they did that, so I'm I'm interested in reading that article. But I, I was reading, you know, one someone, some guy, I think he's from like the Node core team or something, was was recommending against that. And I can see. I don't know if you'd want to build a normal sort of crud style application in node or not. I, I'm not, I'm not sure it might not make it. I don't know if you'd, it'd be a big gain from that. I, you could, you mm. could do it. I just don't know if there'd be any gain. I don't, I'm not sure. It's not the right tool for the job. 
Yeah, I just, I just don't I mean authority. If you're, you I mean PHP and 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 um and and Rails and and uh, Python and ASP and stuff, they all do that fine, right? They've sort of, it's sort of solved problem. People figured out design patterns and libraries to make that just doable. Um, I mean, it still takes a lot of coding, but it's you know people know how to do it. So how do you accomplish the same thing with Node? Um, you know, the fact that everything's asynchronous and hitting it, I'm just not sure. I mean, I haven't done it yet. I haven't tried to say build like a like a you know, CRUD backend using Node. So I don't know if I would want, if, if I think it would, it would add complexity or if it would make it or reduce it. I'll tell you what I was thinking about that, that Node would be great for would be for the new, um, <clears throat> say for example, Google Spreadsheets, things like that. Like the new um, avalanche of apps that are kind of rich internet apps that are basically like, almost like desktop apps, but shifting some of the logic onto the backend kind of thing yeah do you yeah. know what i'm saying because you because you it's the same language it's like javascript on the front end javascript on the back end so you can shift some of that some of that um stuff that may make more sense to be server-side it, it, it might it, especially if you were doing all your templating in javascript on the client so if all you did just like we talked to michael over at uh, nosby he yeah. said eventually what they did is they just made the entire application on the server side is just um it's just an api yeah, the API exactly. serves up JSON, and the JSON gets sent to the client, and the client has uh, intercepts it and uses its own, you know, template. The templating is in JavaScript as opposed to in server-side language, and it just, uh, you know, makes any changes to the uh, the UI as, as needed. Um, which is, if you have a, especially if you have a, um, an a, sort of an, a highly Ajaxified interface where things mm-hmm. are being updated in real time or even partially updated in real time, like Yammer or Twitter, right? Like you have more tweets or you have more messages and you say yes and it just updates stuff for you. Or if mm-hmm. it did that dynamically, it didn't ask for you to, to do it. But that would probably be better if you just sent over JSON and did everything in the client because otherwise you have template code on the server and then you have sort of template code or something like that on the client and you're doing the same, you're, you're adjusting the page in two different places with data and therefore you have to be constantly wary like, okay, I changed the template on the on the server. Now, what do I need to do on the client? Right, it's two places for the same thing, which you don't want to do. That, yeah, that's something that bugs me. Like, uh, like I'll always have, like for example, Plugio will have, you know, form input validation on JavaScript, but it will also have the same form input validation on PHP. And the reason why I do it is because I just I don't want anything bad getting into the system, and I do it on the JavaScript front end so that they can get immediate feedback. But I do it on the PHP back end because I want the system to be secure. I wish there was a solution to that, you know, where you could only write that code once and only do that once. Yeah, and I, I, th- I think the solution is ultimately going to be, um, it's going to be, you're, you're probably going to move your templating and most of that stuff just to the client. I think that's the solution. I think the server, I think if you're going to have a highly Ajaxified UI, you're just going to serve up JSON and you're going to do it on the client. And it's going to be... So, so basically your, your input tests would be done on the server, but they do a, J, uh, an, a JSON response. Is that what you're thinking? Your input tests. So let's say, for example, someone's signing up to your app, they're mm-hmm. entering their email address. You basically verify the email address on the server, but just send back a JSON response. Yeah, no, you'd still have to do, um, you know, I still have to test against validate the data and stuff in the, in the, within the API calls. But yeah, I mean. Because I, I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it on the front end in JavaScript and then sending it to the server. But then it's like, oh, I have to check it again in the server. You always have to do that because people can, otherwise hackers can, 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 um, they can work around that if it's just a client-side validation. There's no security in a client-side validation. Yeah, but so what I'm saying is, are you suggesting remove the client-side validation 
make everything very Ajaxified and only have the server-side validation and send JSON back with the error string? No, I think you'd probably do both client. I think the best way is to do client-side and server-side validation because you want that responsiveness. Like, is this a valid yeah. input? Is this username available? Is this password strong enough? That kind of stuff. You, you know, when that has a real-time feel to it, in most, in, in most sites that have spent a little time in their UI start doing things like that, and it's really slick. It's much nicer than if you submit it. And it's like, oh, this username's not available. And you're like, damn it. And you do yeah. it over and over again, as opposed to, like, in real time, it's either green or red because it's available or not, or because, well, that would have still have to go to the server, but if it's a valid, yeah. like, is the password long enough kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but I, I think you're going to have to do both. I mean, you could do it on the server side, and the server just fires back kind of like Google does stuff like that, but that, that may put a lot more heat on your servers to do that. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I could see pluses minuses depending, but regardless, I think you're just going to do, you're, you're mostly just going to have the server is just, is just going to be an API and it's just going to serve up JSON and JSON as opposed to XML because JSON is <laughs> infinitely easier to, to parse and use on the client than to like, parse through a bunch of XML and then create your your Java your JavaScript objects as opposed to just evaling a string. So it's just JSON. So I think I mean that's that's what I think. And I think for for App Ignite, I mean that'll be a next uh, a next later version, but that's definitely the way I'll, I'll go eventually, which is that you'll rather than having server side templates and server side stuff, we'll just push more of it to the uh, client side, and then you can do a much more you can have a lot more fun doing cool AJAX UIs. All right. Uh, I think we should talk about a, a couple more topics and then um, call it a day. Okay. Uh, I don't actually have anything else. <laughs> what have you got? <laughs> have nothing else. Okay. Um, let's get a couple things. Um, there's, there's, this, is a, this is a week or two old, but it was, there was an article on high scalability called Did the Microsoft Stack Kill MySpace? Mm-hmm. It was really silly, I thought, because I think it was Scoble talked about it. And it's like, you know, I, I, I mean... I, I just think that when you say things like that, it's it's like it just makes you look like you don't know anything about how code works. It's like, you know, you could build a rock solid, solid, scalable website in PHP, Python, ASP, Ruby, Node. <laughs> you can use Oracle. You can use SQLs, MySQL, Postgres, whatever. You know, I mean, and, and you could use Windows and you can use Linux. I mean, so a you, because there are examples of all of them that are huge. There are examples. I mean, plenty of fish was written using ASP in SQL Server. And it was like one dude. The, there was plenty of discussion on the on the blog post, and that was kind of the interesting aspect was all the kind of developers and different different people weighing in on it. And ultimately, what it seems a lot more like is it's more like a kind of hiring spiral related issue. Yeah, and, and another thing too is like Stack Overflow. That was all built using ASP.NET. Right. Yeah. And and that's massively scalable, and they in very few boxes. And SQL Server, and they had incredibly it's, bright people there. Yes, so, exactly. So it's the it's the it's the architecture and and the people and that that way the whole thing's pulled together. Yeah, I mean, and I to me, I, it seemed like business process was the issue. Yeah, and I know a lot of people. See, here's the thing: is that he's kind of playing to like this the this, the startup world, which is a, the startup world for the most part doesn't use the the Microsoft stack. So it makes those people think that they're smarter than the people who write Microsoft code. And so it's like, hey, yeah, people who use Microsoft stuff are stupid. And, you know, they just can't hire good people because all the good people are using Python or Ruby or something. It's like, give me a break. You really believe that? You know, it's, it's like sort of like that exceptionalism. <laughs> and and, I, and it's just it's just retarded because I've met a ton of Microsoft developers who are brilliant. 
Microsoft people who use the Microsoft stack, who use .NET and you know C++ and all those things, and SQL Server, and are brilliant. And uh, and and uh, they would smoke most people who write in any of these other languages. And it has nothing to do with that. And you know they're brilliant people writing in all these different languages who live in all these different countries. Who and and so to start making some some feel like they're smarter, but like oh yeah, we all use. X technology, so we're smarter. We all program in Lisp, so we're smarter. We all program in C++, so we're smarter. It's just stupid, you know, because it's not true. And what is true is that it really depends on individual culture. And I think the only thing you can really say about MySpace is the culture of that company and the kind of people they hired and the fact that they didn't go back and refactor the code because of management. And it just sounded like they had really short-sighted, a non-technical management that just didn't invest in refactoring the technology and bringing in good people. Yeah, it's it. That's that's exactly what it seemed like. It seemed like they didn't iterate. Yeah, they didn't iterate. There was they, they like they were the complete opposite of agility. Yeah, <laughs> they they wouldn't iterate. And plus, also some some business decisions that they would make, they would kind of say, no, let's not do the better user interface because we want to keep up the high number of uh, page impressions. So those page impressions give us more ads. So therefore, we'll make more money. Yeah. So so they kind of put the kibosh on good interface change. That's true. And they also, they were really against going back according to the article. I mean, you know, yeah. we weren't there, so we just have to take, what we, you know, if it's, if, if it's true that they, there was, they were very much disincentivized to going back and cleaning up and refactoring code and making it more efficient. Well, yeah, I mean, you end up getting so much technical debt that your, that your stuff is just running like crap. And I don't care what language you wrote, you'd write it in. You know, I don't care if you're running on a Sun server with, you know, in in C, and if you're not refactoring that code after years and years, you're probably going to have a bunch of inefficient crap, you know. And um, so I, I think that was probably the most problem. I think it had to do with the company specifically. Um, anyway, I just I just find those kind of articles really irritating. And there's another one, the guy, one of the, um, I think it was the CEO or something over at uh, Expensify. It's talking about why they don't hire .NET developers or something. Oh. <laughs> and it was like, and again, it was like, it was just such an asinine thing to say. And of course, there's a, hundred, a bunch of pushback on it. And I'm like, you know, and, and, and all these companies, they think they're, all their developers are brilliant and everybody else is stupid. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, it's like, have you, hey, why don't we have a test? And we get everybody, we'll have a test, a little programming test. Your guys, you want to see how smart your guys are and how you, smart you really are. You know, I hate everybody. He's like, oh, I'm so bright, and I can't believe else writes crap code, and I'm so brilliant. The three people I work with are the best programmers. Everybody's the best engineer they ever worked with. It's like so. Stupid. Well, there's, there there is no real way you could do those kind of tests anyway. Oh, yeah, you could. Sure, you could. You could get people in a room, and you could say, okay, what you know, we could a, you could say everybody has to program the same. Here are the same tools you're going to have. Here's the problem. We're not going to reveal it, and then everybody solve this problem. They have those kind of coding tests all the time. You know, you could you could even say, okay, you will have the same problem. You're going to use Python, and you're going to use Lisp, and you're going to use C, and you're going to use this, and we'll see who does the best. And we're going to have, you know, I think the only coders. way you could have that test is if you created a new language for that one day, and everyone everyone had to learn the language on the day, yeah, and basically why? do the best they well, could. Well, no, no, that's that's talking about you're talking about like sort of a Rob programming skill with a new environment. But I mean, you could even say people who think that they're totally badass and they program in X technology. It's okay, use the technology you want, and we'll we'll let you program against these other guys. Who are yeah, I don't know. I don't Why know. Not? That's a bad, a bad test because it may just happen that that one guy has a library that does this th- this thing that the test does, and he knows exactly where to find the library, and he can find that library in ten minutes. And it's just, yeah, that's the, the, well, that's the whole point. Yeah. I mean, it's like if you had if you if you came up with some tests that weren't obvious solve problems, and maybe you had a few, you maybe you had like five or ten different programming challenges over two days. Let's say you had ten different programming challenges over ten over two days, right? 
you know, and you had it in a, in a closed environment and there were unknown problems and you had at least 10 to 20 representatives from each of the uh, major programming platforms and they all work individually and then we'd see where they're how Okay, how, I mean, it, it would be a completely pointless test because everyone would pretty much come up the same. I mean, if they were all just as smart as each other. Well, no, you just take a random selection. Know. Sorry, people signed up, you know? I mean, I, I, that's what I'm saying is that I'm saying it doesn't matter. That's why it's yeah. so stupid. That's why it's exactly, so irritating yeah. these people go yeah. write this stuff. And it's, it's just insulting these other people. And um, I don't know. It's, it's just a nightmare. It's, it obviously gets your goat. Yeah, just retarded. I mean, it's like, and especially, you know, people who write this <laughs> stuff aren't the technical people. Robert yeah. Scoble is a cheerleader. He's a technical cheerleader. He's not yeah. a developer. He's not a So coder. he just believes yeah. stuff that people tell him. He believes whatever is in the hype that he's reading about from other people. You know, he's not actually building the stuff himself. Therefore, it doesn't matter what he thinks about this because he doesn't know what he's talking about. He just likes to use cool stuff. You know, this is kind of dumb. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I've got that on my, on my skills page. I mean, the first thing I open with, well, you know, uh, like one of the questions I often get asked as a consultant is what languages do you work with? And for me, I'm like, well, that doesn't really matter because like, you know who cares it doesn't really matter what language you work with you if you know you can get up to speed on a new language pretty quickly and just make it make it happen well and it kind of depends i mean there's some languages that i wouldn't take and i wouldn't bill myself as a pro someone says hey you know we have a lisp project i'm like you know i haven't done lisp since college so i mean and, it, and lisp is so different than yeah but but at the end of the, the end of the day right if someone said to you look here's a thousand dollars build me this this thing but by the end of the day in lisp you'd be like okay i can do that you know, if, if it came your way, you'd work out how to do it and you yeah. wouldn't be able to do it. I think it, I think that's more relevant when you're hiring people and they're going to be there long term. So mm-hmm. how long it takes them to get, whether, whether they're up to speed day one or they're up to speed in, in four to six weeks, if they're going to be there two to three years, that first four to six weeks doesn't amount, amount to much anyway. Right. You know, you, you know what the slow, the thing that really does slow you down, it's, it's more like the environment. It's like the tools and the environment and the way the little kind of nuances of each environment and the way that you deploy that code, et cetera. All those things take time to learn. Well, I think even in, in, in that's true. And also it's the, uh, the culture of the company and, and people getting the information you need and who you're supposed to work with. And oh, you got to interface with this database and now we got to get you privileges on the server. And, you know, oh, yeah. oh, we need to have some meetings to talk about this stuff. And this other guy's been working on this module. We need to have a meeting with him. I mean, <laughs> that's what slows you down. Right. Yeah, it's true. That's the it's true. You could you could sit. I, I remember just sitting at my desk waiting a day just to get access to something. Yeah, that know? happens. Over There's nothing and else for me to do. And, like and just you, sit there and surf. And you keep running. <laughs> and you keep running into those for the first. I mean, some companies are better at getting people to speed than others, but there's still whether they get to know you. Period is you know two weeks or six weeks. There's still a period where you're not really running you know, at full speed, because you just don't have familiarity with the environment. You don't have some of the privileges. You don't have some of the libraries. You just don't have the knowledge of what people are doing and stuff at that yet. And so during that period, a lot of times you can get, start getting up to speed in the technology. So if it's some new language and like, hey, we're writing in, you know, uh, OCaml and I've never used OCaml. It's okay. Well, read some book, go some tutorials, write some toy problems and stuff. And meanwhile, we'll get you access to the database, <laughs> you know? right hey someone someone posted something on startup guild and said i, I i'm a pearl coder yep we still exist yeah <laughs> pearl, you, it's funny pearl coders um I, I remember uh you know when i was first starting out like pearl really was the big thing i mean it was absolutely massive yeah you know yeah does, does people still use pearl, pearl these days i think they i think there's a lot of stuff that people use pearl for that it, that's really good i've I think is it like banking industry stuff no now? no i i think it's any type of server-side administrative stuff i'm so not server administration but back-end processes that have to be written like like lots of kind of 
text parsing yeah, stuff. Yeah, all kind of utility program stuff. Okay, so we got this uh, output from this database, and we got to go through, and we got to run a bunch of stuff to pull a bunch of data, and we have to do this other stuff back end, like jobs, like, like server-side jobs that are running. Like, yeah. you might use you know, Ruby or Python as your sort of web framework, but they're all kind of jobs that are, that are run in the background, and you might very well write a lot of those in Perl. Mm-hmm. Or, or rather, there might be libraries in Perl that you just use. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not a Perl guy, so I don't know. I, I know, um, you know, my, the one company I did work for at a college that they did a lot of that. So, you know, one thing I was, as, uh, another topic I want to bring up. Um, so I had, I, you know, when, when I was uh, having lunch with uh, Pat the other day, uh, mm-hmm. or yesterday, we were talking about, you know, when you try and do a startup with a friend, okay, that there's, you know, it's like, well, you know, you can, you can say, okay, let's both do this. But a lot of times one person has more um, ability to allocate time to it or more mm-hmm. interest. Um, so you can both be excited about it, but what happens if you, you go hardcore and then they're like, oh, I work a little bit on the weekend and then they might work on the next weekend and then they're out of town for a week and then they're kind of semi-involved. It's like, in my advice to him is like that, you have to be very careful with that because that can kill a startup. Nothing kills a startup more than you work or then you working on something and then your co-founder is sort of not really making any progress. Right? I, I think the chances of, of a friend, just a friend being the right person to start a found up. I mean, like unless you were in college together and came through a CS degree, it's, it's pretty unlikely. Well, what does that have to do with anything? From the, from the gene pool of your friend group, right? The amount of ambition that you have, it's more, it's more likely that you're going to find someone who has the same level of hunger and ambition that you do I don't through, know. A, through a larger group. That's, that's been my experience. Okay, okay. So I don't think that um, there is a correlation between hunger and desire to do a particular startup and whether you went to the, the CS degree or went to college or somebody. I don't think it has anything to do with anything. I think it's completely dependent on the person and their risk aversion and what else they have going on in their life. You know, Because maybe they're swamped with uh, consulting work. Maybe, they're, maybe they have a full-time job they still like and that takes a lot of time. Or maybe they're engaged and they're getting married and they're spending a lot of no. time preparing for the wedding. There's all these kind of things that just happen, right? People can say, I'm interested in something. But if you're if you're at the CS degree stage, right, you're just forming out, and even the even the friends that you form, you you pick them based on the kind of person you are, right, and you gravitate towards people who kind of think like you and act like you. Yeah. And so that's why it's more likely to happen. Yeah. Those, uh, you don't agree? No, no. I because I've I've went to school a lot of people. I mean, I didn't get a CS degree, I had a math degree with a minor in computer science. It's, <laughs> that's the closest thing they had at University of Chicago. They didn't have like there's no engineering. So anyway, um, you know, it's just. You know, you, you have a few, you know, so you might have some, some people that you uh, hang out with or from your CS world, but it's just like, it's, it's not about them being smart. It's not about you guys seeing the world the same way. It's like, who wants to put time into something right now at this point in your life? You know, this particular project, because it just is dependent. Like, they could be really smart and really good, but it just, they just, you know, at this point in their life, they just don't have the time that they thought or would like to have, or they don't have the motivation. There's just other things going on. And, so the point, the point, okay, go on, what were you saying? Yeah, well, yeah, what I'm saying, people put, people being able to put a lot of time into a project on the side, a side project is, is rare, right? So the chances that anyone is going to be a good co-founder is, is, is smaller <laughs> than you'd want, right? Is that, is mm-hmm. that essentially what you're saying, right? Most people don't. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing about me is, I mean, I, I kind of say I'm going to do something and then I do it and I make it happen and I create it and I put it out there and it exists. And I, I mean, I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I, I don't meet very many people who, 
who do that. Yeah, most people are willing to talk and, and dream about stuff, but not actually do it. And so, and the way I, I think about it is like, you know, when people say they, they're working, I think, oh, I'm working out. I want to, you know, this friend and I, we're going to be workout partners. And I'm like, well, is this guy, does he normally work out? I mean, is he someone who's more motivated than you? You're like, well, I don't know. He wants to. I'm like, Phew. so what's going to happen is you guys both, neither of you are, have, have, the dis, or have had the discipline of going to the gym and working out. And as soon as one of you stops going because you get sick or you got some extra, we got to work overtime for a week, then you're not going to go, right? Because mm-hmm. they're going to quit and then you're going to quit and you're both done. So you're, you're only go as fast as the slowest wheel. And the same thing as a startup because nothing will make you more bitter than you working your ass off on something and your co-founder buddy is not. Because then you're just going to stop, and um, and that's just a, that's a problem. And what my suggestion? Well, before I go into my suggestion, what were we going to say? Well, I was going to say, what's your what's, what is your solution? Because you've defined the problem. Yes, yeah, so that's your the solution? problem. Well, the, the the easiest thing, of course, is if you can find somebody who has the same desire and same sort of risk tolerance and stuff like that, and you know that's going to work, then then sometimes that works. And that that that's that's when we hear about startups succeed, succeed. That's usually the case. Right. It's like two or three guys or a girl or whatever. And they're all like, we're totally into this and we're going to work together this every day. And that, that's what works. All the ones you don't hear about are all the ones where a couple of people decide they're going to do something and one person just ends up not delivering and the thing just kind of fizzles. Well, now, what Guyon and I um, discussed was having what a dynamic equity allocation. And I, exp- I was explaining this to, um, to uh, Pat, which he really liked. And I think, um, you know, is, is this is that, you know, we'll just each tracker hours. And, you know, it doesn't have to be down to the hour, but just basically, you know, just a rough estimate that, you know, I work an hour, I get, you know, a quote, hundred dollars, an imaginary hundred dollar investment into this. You work an hour, you get imaginary hundred. So if I work five hours and you only work one, I'm like, well, I'm glad you put, you know, I don't have to be bitter that I worked five. I'm like, okay, well, I own more. I did more, you know, I'd like it if you did more, but then I own more of the company. So I can see a plus to it as well. Right. So if you decide to go on vacation for three weeks and I get a ton of stuff done, it's like, okay, well, I just bought myself more of the company and I'm not to feel bitter about it. Or if you, if you went off and just did like a 40 hours and you, and you cranked out all this stuff, you know, I might be like, well, yeah, he owned a little more, more of the company than you did, but now that you move the, the company down the, the field and, uh, down the road. So I'm happy about that. So, yeah, but the problem with that is it, it, it can never accurately, accurately reflect the true input into the company because someone may have an idea or someone may have a session just a couple of hours that picks the whole business up yeah but you know it, and that doesn't reflect that yeah well you but it, but it certainly doesn't reflect it if you and i are 50 50 partners right i mean if you and i, I agree if you and i agree to do a startup and we're like we're 50 50 it may turn out that one of us actually uh, the ideas and code we accounts for 70 percent but we've already you know um We've already agreed that we're 50-50, even though... So the I had an idea that was somewhat similar to the way that you, you and Guyon are working, but it's a little bit more equitable. Um, and it would be through using a piece of software or an Excel spreadsheet and basically using the concept of footprint. So everything you guys do in terms of time and in terms of code and in terms of idea, every every little task you work on, you say, right, how much footprint out of percentage, out of zero, you know, zero to 100%, how much footprint did Jason have in that idea and how much footprint did... Um, uh, guy own having that idea and that that also includes rolling out the you know any any product you do so so you kind of ignore the hours concept but you just say you just kind of retrospectively after it's done you say okay what was jason's footprint <laughs> yeah, in that good and luck what's guy with that. footprint in that <laughs> Why? With that? that's gonna be an argument so i'm sorry like you know if, if you you know if you and i argue like well what was our footprint on the podcast right 
you know, you could at different times, depending on your mood and depending on how much you thought you did at a given point, it may vary completely. You may, well, it literally is 50-50 for the book. Yeah, but I'm just saying, you know, it, you could clearly, you, our perspectives might be completely different, right? You might say, listen, Jason, I spent X hours doing, you know, audio production, this and that. And I'll be like, well, I did why, well, And we could get an argument. And it's a problem. Like, well, you didn't do, you know... Well, it's pretty hard to argue that when you break it down, because that's what I'm saying. So, you, so if, you, if you break it down to hours, I mean, you can, you can literally split that up. You can say, okay, Jason spent this amount of hours, um, Glenn spent this amount of hours. So that's an actual number of footprint, you know? Yeah. If you, if you break it down to, the, to an idea, it's pretty easy to kind of split that up. Yeah, Jason thought of this, okay, that Jason has 100% footprint in that idea. Yeah, that's and then, just an and idea, then, but what are ideas really worth in the big scheme of things? No, but it, it doesn't matter what ideas are really worth in the big scheme of things because if you if you footprint out everything, you get a cumulative total of the whole thing. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, so I, remember, like, I remember you bringing this up the first time we talked about this about a year ago, and you probably didn't like it. There'd, there'd be like, like a thousand. I don't like it then. I don't like it now. I think it's over engineering, and I think it's I think it's it's, it's going to create disagreement and disharmony. And it's like if you if you're going into work with someone and you say, "Listen, we're basically equal, right? You're a designer, I'm a coder. We're both coders, or both whatever." I'm going in because I think we're relatively equals. Right. Someday I'm going to have, I'm going to have an off day or an off week. You're going to have an off day and off week. Some days you're going to have, you know, incredible inspiration and get a lot done. Sometimes I will, it'll all even out. But basically you want to do is just track what's your overall investment in this thing. So I just don't want to get pissed off if I, if there goes a three month period where I'm putting a ton of work in and you're not and vice versa. I think you just, yeah. You know, if there is some way for you to account for in, all these little in, independent, like, what did you do? What did I do? It'd be great. But I just think in the end, it's going to cause disharmony and disagreement. I don't see why it would, because when you break down anything into a small enough chunk, it's pretty easy to agree on it. The, the, what's difficult to agree on is the overall thing. But when you're breaking it down to a small enough chunk, you can agree on it. And then it's, and then it's, it's through those agreements on the small scale level, on the micro level, that you then find out what the truth is about the macro level. Yeah. I, so, well, here's the thing is, I don't think people agree on small things either. Like you, yeah, like you and I were talking about, we were arguing about that salting stuff. We're bringing it to a small thing, but we still disagreed. Now, maybe one... But that's, that's complete. We, we, weren't, we were disagreeing on whether it worked or not. We weren't disagreeing on who put the effort in. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, is that it doesn't matter how something is small. If something's small or big, you still disagree on, on, on small things. Um, well, that's I, fine. So then, so then any of those small things that you disagree on, you put them on another pile... And you just say, we'll take 50 and 50-50 of all the shit that we disagree on. Yeah, but the other thing is, too, is I think it ends up taking a lot of time, right? The only way, the only way people are going to do this if it doesn't take much time, right? If the meta work of tracking who owns what doesn't take up a ton of time, if it takes up, a, if it takes up an inordinate amount of time and it's also something you don't want to do because there's always a little bit of un, a disagreement involved, which makes people uncomfortable, which makes people want to avoid it, which means it doesn't get done. I mean, that would be the good thing about using, using um, subversion. You could, you could track it through commits and you could basically, through, through the commit level, you could literally find out what the kind of percentages of your input were. Yeah, and th 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 then you also talk about like, well, some, some, some types of code, some types of problems are simpler, but there's just a lot of lines of code. Right. Yeah. Some are really hard. And it's yeah. also can be like some people are just super committers. I'm committing constantly. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you and I Gion, do that. Yeah, yeah. You and Guyon are like, you know, hyper commit committers. Right. You write a character and it's commit. <laughs> a commit. Not that bad. S T U I V commit. I'm like, I'll go like three or four or five days and I don't commit. I'm like, yeah, I should commit some stuff. And so, as Curtis so will be like, have you committed that RT stuff? And it's been like a week and a half. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll commit it. Right. And it's just because I'm, it's just not how I work. I'm not how I used to working. So, and it's, it's, Joel Spolsky has talked a lot about this. Like, whenever you come up with these sort of metrics 
um, for developers to like say, how many bugs did you have, or how many lines of code, or you know, whether that's it's it's all gameable, and people start gaming it, and um, so therefore, I think you want something that's relatively simple. <clears throat> and like for for what Joel did for uh, Fog Fog Bugs or Fog Creek Software, if I recall correctly, was something along the lines of depending on how many years of the company you how long you've been with the company, you reach a certain seniority level and that's how much you get paid. And I think that was the essence of it. And if you were good, you stayed on with the company. And that was it. All right. There was no argument um, about it. So I think, uh, I think we've come to the end of this show. Do we, I feel like we're missing something. Do we forget something? Um, well, I've, I've pretty much said what I wanted to say. Do you have anything else you want to bring up? <laughs> trying to think. Oh, I know one small thing. Okay, meant to bring up. That's, we'll, we'll call this the last, the last thing, right? The last thing. Um, so I told you. Uh, you remember I told you I was, using, I was, I was, a, I was, a, I was experimenting with intrinsic and extrinsic motivation with. Uh, oh yeah, with Colby. Colby. Yeah. So for, for new listeners, Colby's my six-year-old son, and I, you know, one of the things they have to learn are these sight words, right? And it's like, how do you get them to memorize their sight words? Because sight words are words that are sort of not very phonetic, but are very f- frequent. In, uh, mm-hmm. in the English language. So if you can memorize those things, uh, memorize those words, it'll get you, you know, much further along in your reading and, and, and you won't be stumbling over every fourth or fifth word. And uh, I initially set of eyes, I said, all right, well, if you can memorize your third, because he's in first grade and uh, they had sight words for first, second, and third grade that were handed out by the teacher. And I said, all right, well, if you can memorize your third grade sight words by the end of you know, the week, I'll go to ice cream. He was like, yeah, yeah, all right, great. He was totally in for the deal, right? So did it, worked, perfect. And, um, and, uh, I was like, you know, I want to keep going here. I want to, cause we've been reading a book that's somewhat over his head. It's like for eight through tw- eight to 12 year olds. Mm-hmm. And so and it has a lot of words in it that are more on the fourth and fifth and sixth grade sight word list. And so what I've been doing is writing down the words and, and tracking them and creating more sight word lists. So like, let's work on these. And I said, well, how can I incentivize them with this? And can I just do, the, should it just be the ice cream thing? And I said, you know what I'm going to do is, um, I'm going to get him these cool Lego motors and remote control things. You can build like these contraptions, like, you know, you can build robots or cars and you can attach these battery packs and these remote controls and these um, engines that can power these cars. Because like s- servos and things. That's right. And so, because the reason I, 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 they, they came to my attention is last week um, I, there was a science sort of expo at uh, a local uh, elementary school and they had, you know, like JPL had some rocket guys there showing off rockets and they had some biologists there with like big spiders and stuff. And one of them was this company called Playwell Technologies and they teach like engineering and architectural principles through Lego building these really cool Lego contraptions. And they have all these like centers you go to and they teach all these classes and they have camps and, and it's really, really cool. And the problem is, is none of those are close by us mm-hmm. there are and the only the only actually there's one that's like maybe 15 and 20 miles but it's like the, there's not a course running now and i'm like man colby loves building stuff he's really good at it so i told him i said hey colby i tell you what if you can get through these hundred sight words that were like a kind of fourth and fifth grade level sight words um i'll buy you like you know a, a set of like uh motors and you know engines and and uh, batteries and stuff, and we'll build stuff. Of course, he about flipped out when I said that. Right. So that's that's extrinsic, right? <laughs> extrinsic, right? Yeah, motivation. I mean, he blew through those sight words like nothing, you know. Because I was like, <laughs> these words were hard, like appropriate and unfortunately, and um, I don't know, just like long words. Supposedly, yeah. I mean, these are not like words that six-year-olds 
would be easy for six-year-olds to master. But, you know, we, we just have a handful of sessions. It was just so funny with just a little motivation. I mean, he just smoked right through it. But then, of course, the result are going to be these uh, really cool um, tool, uh, tools for building these mechanical um, constructions, which is a great learning system by itself, right? So that's awesome. But <clears throat> so are you thinking, like, are you leaning in the favor of intrinsic or extrinsic? Now? Yeah, so I'm leaning. So then I give him... So um, it's it's the it's the combo, right? So like, you know, he loves to build stuff, and I and I, and I I like seeing him just spend hours and and building projects that last days and weeks, where he just keeps building them and and, and learning new stuff. So that's fantastic. I don't have to sit down and I'm like, hey, Colby, let's build this really cool robot. I just walk out of the room and I walk back and I half. He's like, Dad, look what I built, right? So that's intrinsic. <laughs> and so if I give him more tools, he can continue doing even more interesting and advanced stuff, which is great, right? It's great for his his. Uh, his mental development and it's great for just him enjoying himself. But I don't want to just go out and spend hundreds of dollars on this stuff just just without without him doing anything because that's sort of like you don't want to spoil your kids, right? So, I'm like, so basically, it's, it's game mechanics. You're, you're basically leveling up Colby's life. <laughs> leveling up. That's right. We're leveling up with a cypher. That needs to be the title of this show. Leveling up. <laughs> Leveling up my son's life. Yeah, so <laughs> it worked out really well. So I we ordered all this stuff, and um, you know, ordered that you know maybe you know maybe twenty five dollars worth of stuff, but enough to get started with. And I said, <clears throat> I said, all right, so I'm going to make up every for every hundred words that you met, you know, another three pages or a hundred words of sight words that you master. We'll order another couple components. So he'll like, oh, you want another couple motors so you can have like a more advanced robot or or a remote control. <laughs> so it's like a or so he uses infrared to control the robot. And each one of these is like eight bucks, but it's like, you know, it's not that expensive, but it allows me to kind of push him through the sight words, which you know isn't that painful yeah. anyway. But it's something if without a motivation, he kind of dreads. I'm like, hey, Colby. And like before we read, we just always like, oh, not the sight words. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I think that's that's a great great strategy. That's fun. So I'll I'll keep you updated on what he ends up building because this week is spring break, so we'll we'll end up for him. So we'll get uh, end up building some stuff. So hopefully, he builds something cool. So all right, well, uh, I guess uh, I guess that's it, huh? We're out of here. Yeah, it's been a good show. I think the, we've covered a lot of different topics. We had some good arguments. We haven't argued like that in a while. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. yeah we're, we're definitely going to keep those in. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a wrap. We're out.